Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This episode was recorded on Thursday, August, or not August, September 20th, 2018, uh, starting at 3.50 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 174th episode of the show. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Kelly Surtees and Austin Kopic about the astrological forecast for October of 2018. Uh, hey guys, welcome back to the show. Hey, Chris. Hello. Hello. Uh, Kelly, you are back. You were in Australia last time we talked to you, but you're back home now. I am. I am back home and finding my feet. I'm loving it. Excellent. And Austin, you also just got back from a trip to a conference, right? Yeah, I was up in Seattle for the Text and Traditions Colloquium. Interesting. So, and that was for like a esoteric books, basically, right? Yeah, it's the successor to an event which ran uh, for about a decade called the Esoteric Book Conference. And so, it's a bunch of you know wizards talking about their favorite books <laughs> and presenters. You know, sounds fun. Uh, all right. So today we're going to get into the astrological forecast. I can't believe it's already been a month since our last one. I think we, I always say that, but this time it did really fly by pretty quickly. Um, we're going to focus primarily on the Venus retrograde. I think that was the thing that we all agreed really stands out for October, or that's like the main astrological transit. I think we're probably going to spend the most time talking about. But before we get there, as usual, we have a few news and announcement type things to get through and a little discussion topic, and then eventually we'll get to the forecast. So for the video version of this, I'll put some timestamps in the description or in the comments section below the video if you want to skip ahead to the forecast, and I'll see what I can do about maybe putting some timestamps on the audio version on the description page for this episode as well if people want to skip forward there also. All right, so um, before we get into things, first, um, what do you guys have going on this month? Uh, Kelly, you are getting ready for a conference, right? Yes, I'm getting ready for the SOTA conference, which will be in Buffalo mid-October, the 18th to the 22nd. <laughs> Better check the dates. So about a month from now. Uh, and it's one of those lovely kind of small conferences. I think their tagline is, you know, you won't get lost in the crowd. And I often take the train down from Toronto Union uh, because it's it's maybe a two-hour drive. So it's a very pleasant sort of trip. And in previous years when I've gone on the train, you sort of bump into other astrologers and you feel like you're sort of taking the train to Hogwarts or something because uh, it's a, quite a beautiful train trip where you go uh, over the Niagara region. So... Yeah, so that's coming up. I'm giving the pre-conference or one of the pre-conference workshops there. Um, I'm also participating in a panel. This is really interesting. They put together a panel on Saturday afternoon around, you know, when we've made mistakes. So when we've, you know, made uh, forecasts or, you know, uh, given reassurances, if you like, to our clients where, clients where things haven't quite turned out as expected. So that I'm really looking forward to both participating in that, but also hearing what my fellow panelists have to say on that front. Yeah, that's a great that's a great idea for a panel because that's so important in terms of not just acknowledging, you know, one's successes, which, you know, certainly we all like to do or or some you might like to highlight as an astrologer, but also sometimes going back and looking at your failures uh, in order to like grow and improve not just individually but as a community. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah. Sorry, Austin, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, I think it's important, of course, to look at where you went wrong when you didn't get Mm. the right answer. But I think in doing that, it's also useful to look back and, and look at the, you know, where you were getting everything from and say, that was actually a reasonable prediction. Mm. Um, it's not that I messed up and none of these, you know, none of these techniques work or whatever, but realize like when, as far as I know, everything was pointing to that and then look for the bit that you didn't see, right? Yeah. Rather than because sometimes, sometimes when we're self-critical, um, you know, although there's a lot of improvement that results from self-criticism or criticism of past actions, uh, sometimes it's easy to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And that's a way of mm. not really sitting with the, the mixture of success and error that went into whatever the prediction was. Yeah. So I'm I'm just starting to go through all of my, you know, clients' charts with just some of the feedback that I've had and, you know, I've known for a while I'll be on this panel. So every now and then when someone tells me something, I'm like, that's not how I interpreted that thing. Just making that mental note. So it'll be interesting. Yeah, it's really different to, to talk about, look, we will we can get it right a lot of the times or we can get it partially right. But, yeah, what are we missing when well, something doesn't quite go as expected? Yeah, and those like close but no cigar yeah. predictions are really interesting. Yeah, Sure. So that's the state of the art astrology conference known as SOTA, and that's in Buffalo later in October. Do you know the website for that? Yeah, I think it's Donna Van Toen. Um, so it's Donna's website. Um, and Donna is D O N N A. Van Toen is V A N T O E N. Um, so even if you Google like S O T A, SOTA, and Donna, it should come up quite quickly. Okay. Awesome. And yeah. that actually reminds me that. Just in the past week, I think um, the announcement, the official announcement went out for the next Northwest Astrological Conference, which is going to take place in Seattle next May. And uh, Kelly and I were both speaking at it. And I'm also, I think we're both also doing like competing workshops, unfortunately, at the same time. (laughs) What are your your lectures there, Kelly? Um, That's a very good question. (laughs) Okay. Well, instead of asking- don't ask me that question because I haven't checked. Because, you know, some people come back to you and say, we've chosen these topics. And I think you and I were chatting in, the other week and you were like, no, the website's up. And I was like, I've got to check. Um, yeah. But we are right. giving post-conference workshops on the same Monday, I believe. Yeah. That's one of the things, funny things about astrologers speaking at conferences is the organizers usually ask you to submit like three or four possible talks that you could give. And then they pick one that sort of matches their overall flow of the rest of the conference. And oftentimes you, the astrologer doesn't find out until they put the schedule up officially on the website. So a bunch of us just found out in the past week what talks we will actually be giving um, at Norwax. So this is going to be, I want to say the biggest conference of the year because there's a lot of energy going into Norwax. The organizer of Norwax is, of course, Lauren Albandian, who organized UAC last year. Um, all three of us are going to be there. Austin, you're only like an hour away or something, right, from Seattle? Um, Eight. Eight? Okay. Eight, eight close hours? Very close. Hour, okay. eight hours. <laughs> An hour uh, flight. No. Um, so yes, I live in Oregon, but I okay. live five hours south of, Por- of Portland. And Got so it. people are like, oh, you're in Oregon. So that means Seattle's right around the corner. No, right. California yeah. is 15 miles away. Right. All right. Yeah, we'll uh, actually all be together in person then. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to that. Um and hopefully, I mean, we're still kicking around the idea and I need to talk to Laura, but maybe we can do some sort of podcast event 
if we were going to do one next year, then I think Norwak is where where we would do it. Uh, yeah, so that's yeah. it's natural. At the, at the very least, we're going to do a meet and greet, but maybe best case scenario, we do a live recording of an episode like we did at UAC a few months ago. So that's going to be awesome. You can find out more information about that at norwac.net. Uh, it's going to take place at the end of May 2019. I'm giving a talk on reception as a mitigating factor in natal astrology, uh, another talk on sect, the difference between day and night charts, and then a post-conference workshop on blending modern and traditional astrology. And Kelly, it looks like your workshop is Places of Ease and Pathways of Frustration Go Deeper with Natal Aspects. That's right. Yes, because I did in what you were just saying where you know, you submit a few topics and it's not just you get to speak on your favorite thing because the organizer's trying to balance the cho- the topic choice basically. So I think my I'm giving the one of the keynote lectures and that is going to be on towards a collaborative future, past, present and the way forward. Now that I'm actually already working on um cuz that's a little bit more of a an intense thing to give. And then one of the talks I'm giving is called timing of transformation. So looking at some of those major predictive events that can happen when you go through a really significant life event. And then the second talk is on career planets. So fulfilling your potential, looking at where we can see um, career potential in the chart or career themes. Um, And it is a great conference. And Laura has already said that the interest very early on is much stronger or much more interest than usual. So it's the kind of conference where it might actually sell out. So for people who are interested, um, definitely book early. And the early bird rates are incredibly affordable. So if you are thinking of coming to that conference, I wouldn't leave it to the last minute to get registered. Definitely. All right, cool. I'm actually really excited about that because Norwalk is always my favorite. It was my first conference and it's always like the one that I I enjoy the most just because it's like a nice size and like you you see often a lot of the same people and it has like a cool layout in the hotel and everything else. Yes, the courtyard. Right. (laughs) And Luba behind the bar with all of our drinks. Right. There's always like the same bartender like every year. Yeah, Uh, she's been there as long as the conference has been there maybe. I'm not sure. She's lovely. Sure. All right. Uh, so that would be great. Austin, what do, you, what do you have going on this month? Well, I'm going to be teaching um, the Synodic Cycles uh, unit in my Fundamentals of Astrology. So we're going to be going over how phase affects planets. And of course, we'll be talking about retrogrades, but we'll be talking about the other um, less famous phases the planets go through, right? Like Occidental and Oriental and Combust and, you know, all of that. So that's, um, you know, it's a piece of the fundamentals. Everyone should know it. If you don't, you can drop in. Um, even though the class is designed sequentially, it's, uh, there, uh, should we say, sell, uh, there are modules that are standalone. So people can pop in for a month if they need to, um, bone up on a particular topic like synodic cycles. And, it's not this month, but I should tell you about it this month. Um, as I mentioned before, I'm doing a live event in Melbourne, Australia with my uh, friend and colleague Gordon White on November 24th, and that is So Below, and we'll be talking magic and astrology and history. And more than considerably more than half the tickets are already gone, so if you're thinking about doing that, don't, don't dawdle because we, we can't like let extra people in there's 
you know, a hard limit. Um, and so those tickets not only buy you some time with Gordon's lovely self and my own questionable self, um, we actually have the venue for, I think, eight or 10 hours and have sponsorship from a brewery. And so there will be two hours of, you know, hopefully not totally boring talking. And then there will be another eight hours of definitely not boring drinking and carousing and getting to know people. And that's included with the ticket price. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds great. That's great that it's already half sold out. So it's really booking. Yeah, fast. that's amazing. Yeah, well, we, we hoped people would want to come. Sure. The so free, it's the free drinks. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Open bar will do that. Um, all right. So that's what you've got going. And you've got the event, the Synonic Cycles, and the Venus and Scorpio webinar as well, right? Yeah. Um, I was originally going to do that this Sunday, um, but I'm going to need to reschedule it. And I actually wasn't going to bring it up because I hadn't figured out when I would reschedule it yet. Um, that'll get announced within the next couple of days. I think I might just do it on the station. It's a Friday. Might maybe just, you know, dive right in. Either that or the On the Venus Friday. station. Yeah. So it's either going to be the, the, the fifth or... Mm, Thinking about it, I'll probably do the previous Friday. I'll probably the do 28th. the twenty eighth. Yeah, I'll do the twenty eighth. Okay, and cool. that actually reminds me. Oh, and and people can find out. I'm sure you'll have a description page for that on your website. Yeah, I have a, I've, right? I've Yeah, I've had it. I've had the description page up. We're going to talk about the Venus retrograde and Venus retrogrades in general. This one specifically um, this year, as well as the Venus retrograde in Scorpio, which happens every eight years. And then do a little bit um, about what it might look like if it's conjoined a planet in your chart or, you know, if there are planets in the in the path of it or if it's in a particular house and this and that. So we're going to, you know, try to hit it from as many angles as possible. Awesome. And uh, actually, that reminds me, Kelly, you've got that um, planetary trends uh, retreat coming up in early 2019, right? Yeah, I was like, oh, speaking of forward planning, Austin, you've just given me my segue of what I forgot to talk about. Yeah, I'm doing a year ahead transit and progressions workshop um, in Palm Springs, January 18 to 20, 2019. So that is open for registration for anyone who is interested. We'll be looking at what's happening um, in 2019, but connecting it to your personal chart. So the idea is to give everyone a chance to step away from their regular life check back in with the cosmos, see what your personal cycles and planets have got in store for you and do a little bit of sort of um, celestially inspired year ahead planning. Awesome. That sounds great. Yeah. So info for that is on the Astrology University website. Okay. Just astrologyuniversity.com. Yeah. And if you just go, like if you just put in Palm Springs retreat, it'll come right up on the search button there. Perfect. All right. Sounds yeah. good. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, as for myself, uh, last month I launched the professional astrologer course and that went really well. It's been a really great rollout so far. And there's like a great first group of students who are taking it. And I've been spending some time over the past month doing interviews, uh, video interviews with different professional astrologers to add to the course that are sometimes they're kind of short, like 30 minutes or, or me and Kelly, we just did one where we got kind of carried away and it turned into like an hour long discussion about how to structure a, a natal astrology consultation 
And then that sort of branched out into a bunch of like related themes. I don't even know all the things we ended up getting into. Do you remember, Kelly? Yeah, I feel like we provided a really good overview of uh, practice management, you know, handling the client, how to structure the session, how to manage the time. It, it would almost answer a lot of questions people would have about getting started or giving consults because we did blow our 30-minute time limit quite rapidly. Right. <laughs> yes, uh, but it was worth it. And that was a great interview I've added to the course. And so I'm just adding different interviews to different parts of the course with different professional astrologers to get different perspectives and opinions and I also did one with Adam Ellenboss on his experience teaching astrology. I did another one with Sam Reynolds on how he uses Twitter and how he's used Twitter in order to really grow his astrological consulting business over the past decade. Uh, and I'm going to keep doing other interviews over the course of the next month or so and adding them to different parts of the course. So you can find out more information about that course at uh, theastrologyschool.com. And uh, yeah, I'm still doing open enrollment right now, so you can sign up whenever you would like. Uh, other announcements, Paula Bellomini, Bellomini and I are working on the calendars for next year, for 2019. And I'm actually, we're having trouble coming up with a background design for next year's calendar, and we're looking for a background design. So if there's any designers out there that are interested in potentially submitting one, or if you've found a piece of artwork that might be nice that we might be able to license, uh, send me an email to let me know just because we're looking for something that would be striking on like a single page calendar that shows all of the transits for the year. Uh, hopefully we'll have that out before too long. Um, other than that, I'm also looking, possibly looking for an assistant or for assistance because I'm getting kind of overwhelmed with the podcast and other sort of duties and other things that I've got going on. And I need to start like farming out some work. And I'm realizing that that's what a lot of my friends are doing. Like Kelly, you work with different people in order to, that's how you're able to to do as much as you do, right? Yeah, I, I do. I, I have um, a couple of great, I call them my, my magic team, um, Katrina and Rob, and they both work a couple of hours each day, just keeping on top of inquiries or if pe sometimes people just need information um, that can be passed on from someone else. So of course, anything to do with astrology and content and, and sessions and teaching is still all me. Um, but there, as you guys know, there's a portion of, of the inquiries that we get where somebody just needs to check the starting date for something or the price for something, or I can't find the link for something. And those um, inquiries can be handled by by the magic team. And that just gives, well, it gives me a little bit more time to do the creative stuff. So more blogs, more podcasts, more videos, more teaching. And similarly, I think for you, Chris, and I know Austin, we've talked about this too. So I think if anyone's listening that has skills in this sort of um, assistant support tech astrology space, let any one of us know. Yeah, please, please do. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, and that could, there's a number of different areas where I need help. I mean, one of them I've been behind on a while now is getting together transcripts for the podcast. Although since we've started doing videos, I realized recently that YouTube automatically captions all episodes of the podcast that are uploaded to a video, all you have to do is just press the closed caption button. And the captions are actually surprisingly good. So a lot of the episodes that there's video versions for, there's going to be transcripts already on YouTube, but there's a lot of back episodes that I still need to do. And I've been trying to figure out how to organize that project for a while now. So a bunch of little projects like that that I could use some help on if anyone has any interest. 
I think that's it for those announcements. The last sort of like announcement announcement is this month's giveaway. So um, I actually found this really amazing astrological planner for 2019, and we are partnering up with them in order to give away three copies of that planner to three lucky patrons uh, for this month's giveaway. Because each month we do a giveaway to patrons of the Astrology Podcast who support it on the five and ten dollar tiers, and so I'm going to do a draw with drawing where we give away uh, three of these planners. So I wanted to mention it really quickly because this is actually it's kind of cool and it's kind of an innovative way that they're developing this, where they've got a crowdfunding campaign in order to print up their target goal, which is I believe two thousand copies of this really nice um, astrological planner for 2019. And for the the video, people watching the video version of this episode, I'll just share my screen really quickly so you can see it. So it's called the 2019 Astrological Planner by the Magic of Eye, and it's pretty cool as a as a sort of weekly planner. And they call it sort of like a navigational tool for discovering your potential because it's not just um, an astrological planner where it shows like the moon cycles and planetary movements and things like that. But it can also be used as sort of like a journal uh, as well. Um, you've have you've used different sort of journaling type things like that before, right, Kelly? Yeah, I have because um, I'm a massive note taker, and this mm-hmm. the the production quality on this looks amazing. Uh, so it looks. It just looks really spectacular. I'm like, I want to buy one immediately. Yeah, it's the the phrase is uh, an intention setting journal. So it's uh, part of the description. Description is it says that the planner is a love child love child of an artfully designed regular calendar and a weekly planner, and a yearly intention setting journal and a map of planetary movements for 2019. So uh, the artwork is just really beautiful. The author is an astrologer named Carrie Kershaw from Melbourne, Australia. And one of the cool things about this is she has versions for both the northern and southern hemisphere. So she's uh, sort of conscious to make those two two different versions for different time zones. There's one for Pacific time zone and one for uh, southern hemisphere, like one of the Australian time zones. What's AEST, Kelly? Which one That's is that? That's the um, Australian Eastern Standard Time, Okay, so um, Eastern. So like yeah. Sid- Sydney and other cities It'll like be, that? Yeah, Sydney, Brisbane, um, Melbourne, basically. So it's the main time zone, if you like, that the major cities or the, the majority of the population in Australia would be on. Um, yeah. Perfect. So that's great. Yeah, so coming out of Australia, they'll definitely have the North American time zones, but they'll have the Aussie ones as well, which is great. Sure. Okay, so it's got a monthly calendar, an aspectarian. Uh, it's got different reference guides. It's designed for both. Uh, beginner, intermediate, and advanced students of astrology. So you don't have to have huge astrological background to use it, but you can actually learn astrology just through the process of using the planner. Um, they're doing an Indiegogo campaign, which ends on October 4th in order to plan it. So if they can get enough backers, then they will pr- print 2,000 uh, copies of the journal. Uh, I think they're going to print it no matter what, but their their goal is raising $20,000 for Printing all of the copies and shipping them for this planner. So there's still 14 days left from the day that we're recovering, that we're recording this. So if you'd like to support this project and also get one of the plan planners, um, do a search for 2019 Astrological Planner by the Magic of the Eye, or I'll put a link to it on the description page for this episode of the podcast on the astrologypodcast.com website. So you can find out more information about it there. 
All right, so that is the giveaway this month. Um, let's transition at this point into our, our discussion topic before we get to the forecast. So usually we have some sort of discussion topic where we just discuss things are go- that are going on or things that have been on our mind that we're working on over the course of the past few weeks. But we were having a hard time. There's not like a lot of topics. The only topic that I came up with is a discussion that came up recently on Twitter, which is it's a broader topic of pricing astrological consultations because there's a little bit of an issue there where from an astrologer's perspective, sometimes it's hard to set, figure out where to set your prices for doing like a natal astrology consultation or something like that because pricing is a little bit all over the place in the astrological community and there's no set rate that like everybody uses as a standard rate. Um, but then there's also sort of like a, which then can make it sort of confusing from a client standpoint in terms of knowing, you know, what's an appropriate price to play, pay versus what's not. Uh, but that led to a separate discussion, which is one of the things I've noticed over the years is that sometimes if you come across somebody who's charging like way, way, way more than anybody else is, but they're not an astrologer that's otherwise well known or like renowned for doing great work or, or something like that. That sometimes that can be kind of like a red flag that it could be like a scam of some sort. And this came up because there was some kind of scam astrologer that was charging like a lot of money and then like not delivering reports or that was ripping people off. And that was one of the red flags for for this person was just that he was charging like way more than anybody else was, but he wasn't like a leading astrologer or something like that. And it sort of made me realize that even though I see that or I know that that's kind of like a red flag, that's not something that most people would realize is a red flag necessarily. Um, Have you guys seen that as well? Or is that something you'd agree is kind of like a red flag? Um, I don't know if I would say like red flag specifically, but I mean, I'm always struck by, you know, people who charge these what seem quite extreme amounts of money for a session. And I guess I'm I'm like, okay, well, I guess if that's what they're charging, but I feel like if they're not offering anything for that, then of course that's a massive ripoff. I mean, whether you're charging $100 or $1,000, if you're charging for something and they're not delivering it, that um, that's obviously an issue for sure. Sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess that's one thing not delivering, but I guess there is a question, an open question of there's a, a tension between the sort of idea of you know, charging whatever the market can bear or what have you is one approach versus when is there like a limit of like diminishing returns in terms of like when is an astrologer charging too much or when are they charging more than what they're actually able actually able to offer or something like that? It's not something that there's like a definitive answer to, but it's certainly a question that I think most um, conscientious sort of astrologers wrestle with from time to time. Yeah, I I mean. I think the only reason that I have my prices where they are is that Kate looked at like five people she knew that I would consider my peers and said, this is the average of what they're charging. Doesn't that seem about right? And I was like, well, if that's what's happening, um, it's so it's very difficult to ascertain the value of something like astrology. Like, what is mm. the value? Right? right. Maybe if, if you were doing, financial astrology you were doing like helping people with day trading or something and they could actually quantify um how much money you were helping them make that that might be the one exception 
but that's, you know, that's a notable exception to what's obviously a rule. It's a difficult thing. Sure. Yeah. And it's, it's hard because there's like the other end of the spectrum. And most of the discussion over the past few months I've seen amongst astrologers or like on Twitter amongst astrologers where it's become much more active with professionals over the past few years has been like encouraging younger people to to start charging or to start mm. seeing clients and that's something I really in my course in the professional astrologer course I have a few videos just talking about this question of you know at what point should you start charging or when should you start offering consultations when do you know that you're ready to start doing that or accepting money and my response to that is if you've been studying astrology for a while you should start seeing clients at some point and you basically just have to push yourself too because there's not going to be any point where you feel like you know ev- everything there is to know about astrology because one of the issues is that there's a limit to book learning and a large part of your education as an astrologer is only going to happen once you start seeing clients because every new client you see you're going to learn something new from so at some point you just have to take the the dive or take the risk and start doing it and push yourself to start doing it but so that's like one end of the spectrum of just like encouraging more astrologers to you know start charging for their services and to set like appropriate fees and not undersell themselves but then there's that other side of the discussion as well about either when does it become too much or when is somebody doing something that's kind of unethical or exploitative or something like that yeah it's i mean cuz it does i mean lisa's just put an example in here and i think you're sort of talking about people charging in sort of the thousand dollar an hour type range or something and yeah we're talking does... about like exorbitant like amounts like yeah like when it gets cuz that's at least currently if if the other if they cuz my relatively speaking if like top astrologers let's say I saw a quote recently saying that like Stephen Forrest and Alan Oak can only charge like three three hundred fifty dollars an hour, right? And I actually know a bunch of people that charge in the three to three hundred and fifty dollar an hour range. I'm pretty sure Jessica Lanyard charges three twenty five. Sure, and that's like yeah. the upper end of the spectrum, though more or less at the its current point in time. Mm-hmm. You know that's in and of itself pretty expensive. But if somebody else who's not like Stephen Forrest is charging like a thousand dollars an hour, like that's where it's a little bit of a red flag to me because, or it's one factor that you would take into account as potentially problematic. Well, um, it's, if it's it's just not a good deal. You can sure. get like absolutely top notch astrologers for three hundred. Right. right. Yeah. You know, or I would say in the, the two to 400 range, you can find a lot of fantastic people. Like, yes. It, unless you have found, you know, the world's secretly best astrologer, there is no reason to pay a thousand. Like, yeah. you, you, again, you can get like top shelf, highest quality for way less than a thousand. So whether it's ethical or unethical, it's not a very good deal. Sure. And, and I guess it's not even because my, main point here wasn't even just like what's an appropriate price among legitimate astrologers it was more just i cringe sometimes when i see examples of somebody actually being ripped off by somebody who's either pretending to be an astrologer or who's you know using astrology and like harming people in some way and one of the ways that you can harm people is like overcharging uh not offering uh, an actual valid service and things like that. And so that's the main thing is just that if you see somebody that's charging like way more than somebody else, 
um, that might be a red flag to you as like a consumer that maybe they might not be the best person to go with, or maybe you should be careful and do additional research or even get you know, referrals. Because one of the things that you can do is ask around and see if there's other astrologers who would vouch for that astrologer and say, that person does good work. Because so often with the astrologers that are scam artists, it's like other astrologers in the community know about that and will tell you if you ask about that person. So mm-hmm. it's more of just a like how to educate sort of consumers of astrology about um, things that they should watch out for or be aware of as potential potentially problematic issues. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's similar. It, it sort of makes me think of that old adage, you know, buyer beware. And I definitely think you want to do your research about who you might connect with, but what what is a relevant or appropriate kind of price point. Um, and it's tricky, you know, because if somebody feels like they're adding value and they're at the $1,000 an hour mark and they've got clients who feel like they're getting value out of their consult, then, I mean, I don't know if that's possible. I, I find it a little bit astronomical to think that that's there. Um, and it does seem that most of the astrologers who might be involved in the astrological community with teaching and writing or publishing books and things are in that two to five hundred, two to sort of four hundred dollar an hour space, perhaps give or take a bit for currency conversions, perhaps. Sure. And, and that's sort of a thing of, you know, somebody in the comments is saying, Caitlin Kovic is saying that there's a thing about pricing your waitlist down. So there are astrologers like Stephen Forrest who like are scheduling out like a year in advance or like yeah. maybe like two years in advance at this point. I don't even know. And so sometimes charging more is almost necessary or is a way of, of because their time almost becomes more valuable at that point, yes. it becomes necessary. But that's not even that's a whole separate issue and separate discussion because all I'm talking about is a situation where when I say like an astrologer is not well known where they don't have people that are like banging down their door in order to like see them necessarily, but they're still charging exorbitant amounts. That's where it's a little little bit weird or can sometimes be a, a red flag. And that's the only reason I'm bringing that up in terms of, you know, is there a, a supply and demand thing going on or are they overvaluing what they actually have to offer on some level? So, yeah, I don't know. What do you think, Austin? You're abnormally quiet, and so I'm not sure if you're disagreeing or if you're. Oh no, um, I'm just actually kind of calm today. Okay, it happens every now and again. We're um, not used to this. Yeah, I know. I gotta keep everyone guessing, right? Um, I don't know. You know, I, I think we've said a lot of what can be said. You know, you can't. I mean, obviously, every person has the right to ask whatever they ask for their time and energy. Um, I don't think that somebody who doesn't have much of a reputation um, as an astrologer is going to be very successful in commanding a thousand dollars an hour. So I I don't think that's something that, um, you know, I don't, I don't think that's something we're going to have to worry about everywhere. Um, (laughs) That would suggest that there was, that the demand for astrology was um, even more extraordinary than it already is. Um, I mean, that's yeah, what you would think, it, but then bizarrely, then- bizarrely, like you do occasionally hear that story of like this person who paid that exorbitant amount to that, you know, astrologer nobody's ever heard of and then didn't have a good experience for whatever reason. I mean, that's what's bizarre is still sometimes people, right? Somebody in the comment, Caitlin, is saying people assume that it's worth it at that point. If they're charging that much, it must be really good. Yeah. I mean, it can happen. That's, 
And whether it is good or not, there is a perception in the marketplace that if something's a little bit more in price, that there's something a bit better about it. Um, And I'm not saying that's uh, correct. I'm just saying that tends to be how pricing and market value kind of works. Um, Sure. And and maybe I framed this discussion wrong because I'm framing it in terms of pricing, but that's more like a professional issue. Maybe the question I should have asked is just, what are some things that you guys see as red flags where sometimes, I mean, do we all agree that occasionally, very rarely, like you'll run into somebody in the astrological community that might be like a, a bad actor or might be not using astrology for great purposes or or might in fact be like scamming people or something? Because like, like to me, I, I do very rarely occasionally like run into situations like that where that's clearly the case. But I don't know if that, I mean, have you guys run into that or do you feel the same way? I haven't run into that actually. So I want to hear more about whatever you guys might have found. Um, I feel like I've mostly connected with people who are genuine and offering something of substance for whatever price point they've got going on. I haven't run into scams. Yeah. I mean, I think that is the case. And that's almost not your expectation if you're coming at it from like like skeptics, for example, from outside of the astrological community, assume that all astrologers are just ripping people off. And so if you're coming into the community from that perspective, you might expect that. But in reality, 99.9% of all astrologers you meet are actually just genuine, normal human beings that are using this kind of weird subject, but they're trying to, to do the best job that they can, and they're trying to be ethical and, and upstanding people. It's Yeah, I also think astrology is not the best way to scam people if you're going to profess to have mystical powers um because you know one astrologer can talk to another and find out whether they know about astrology like there are different schools and such but like you know not everybody's astrology looks exactly the same but there are basic things like do you know the structure of the zodiac the houses what planets rule which signs what aspects are you know there's a technical curriculum that every uh, astrologer shares uh, to some degree. It's easy to verify. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, the only um, uh, the only scammers that I've encountered were um, were billing themselves as psychics, mm-hmm. where you know there's no like n- testing their knowledge, right? And it, it's easy, which isn't to say that psychics are or that there aren't legitimate psychics or people, you know, doing legitimate things under that label. Um, But that's a lot easier to scam people, right? You're just like, yep, I have mystical powers. Where did you learn them? I was born with them, you know, like there's, there's, there's less you can, you can test. And, you know, if you live in, if you ever lived in LA, for example, there's like a questionable psychic on every corner. Mm. Yeah. Right. Uh, Yeah. I guess it's just, and, and that's something you said, Austin, that another astrologer, when you meet like another astrologer, like as a practitioner, you can rec- recognize other practitioners pretty quickly and you can relatively easily start to gauge what they know or what they don't know. Um, whereas from a client's perspective, if you either don't know any, any astrology or you're new to astrology, you don't really know what to look for necessarily. And instead, you have to rely on other signals like their their marketing or how they come across or other things like that and i think that's what can make it tricky sometimes to to make those sorts of judgments is just not being able to tell yeah there's one um there's one question that's come in the q a box about a listener who said they paid 
you know, $400 in 1982 for a session with a well-known astrologer at the time. And that astrologer demanded that they not speak or ask any questions during the session. So I think that would be a warning sign to me if you're going to pay to have a consultation with someone, but you can't have a discussion as part of it. Um, so one question like for people to ask if they're new or they're looking for someone might be, you know, can I ask questions as we go or what, you know, what tends to happen in the experience? If you're just going to have to sit there and listen to someone talk at you for a couple of hours, that would be, that would ring warning bells in my mind. That is certainly very different from the way that I like to do things, but I could see somebody where that was just their reading style. But that is that yeah. is certainly odd. But there are some very odd people who are very genuine astrologers. That's true. That's true. Sure. Um, yeah. So this is all part of a broader thing, and maybe that can be a separate episode of its in and of itself at some point, which is just like astrology from a, a client standpoint or from a consumer standpoint, and how to research like doing an astrological consultation so that you. Have a good experience and and different things to look for in order to find an astrologer that's suited to what you what you want to get out of the consultation. Totally, I think that would be helpful. Cool. All right. Well, uh, so that's really it for that discussion. Uh, In terms of discussion topics, uh, I don't know if we have anything else. Do you guys have anything you want to talk about before we get into the forecast? Um, Nothing that we haven't. You know, we've talked a lot about the the state of astrology over the last three months, maybe three or four months. And the only things that I can think of are more general like that. And I don't know that there've been particularly new developments. So I would say, no, I don't, I don't have anything in particular to add at this moment. I mean, the only question I would throw to you guys, cause this is coming up a little bit in the chat box. I know the original intention of this, the discussion wasn't necessarily about pricing per se, but if you guys were to give a guideline to new practitioners as, you know, maybe start charging in this range, do you guys have any tips or suggestions for people around that? Um, yeah, just, it doesn't, it, it doesn't <laughs> matter. Just charge. It can be like $5 or $20, $25 or something like do a reading for $25 for a friend or for, for somebody just start somewhere really low. And then gradually over the years, as you get more comfortable, you'll raise your prices until they re- eventually reach an appropriate level and become sort of self-sustaining if that's what you're shooting for. But but even just charging like $5, as long as there's some sort of exchange um, and you've taken that first step is is really important. I, I want to double down on the exchange part. Like that's mm. really important that there's you they are giving to you and you are giving to them. There's mm. um there's a power that comes out of exchange. Um and I would also so I see a fair amount so I see people struggling with like oh you know um I need to charge more but I'm afraid to um and then the support those in advice those people are given which is well intended which is like hey you know this is worth it you know addressing some of the issues with money um many of us have um is like you know charge more and feel good about it what I would also just say as you know as far as getting into your practice and getting comfortable reading for clients is that make sure not to charge so much that it makes you nervous as hell that you're not going to live up to that price. 
-hmm. Like, you know, pick a price that, um, you know, basically think about charging 50 and then 75 and 100. And when you start feeling nervous, like maybe pull back from that a little bit and let yourself like grow into a price because, um, you know, there, I can think of periods of time where I was charging almost nothing, but I, I wasn't sure about the value of what I was doing. And so, um, charging, you know, like 50 bucks or whatever it was made me more anxious during the reading and made my experience of the reading worse and made me worse at reading. And so that, that's something to think about too. Um, and you can, you know, you'll relax into your price. Um, and once you get comfortable at, you know, at X, then think about, you know, X plus two, whatever, you know, whatever it is. Totally. Because I think this is, this is the question that, I mean, we probably deal with as teachers and practitioners more often is, yeah, what should I start at? And the exchange piece is really critical because one of the things I think new practitioners do tend to struggle with is recognizing the value in what they're doing. So your advice there, Austin, around just charging at a price point that doesn't stress you out. And the other thing that I think we have to get used to when we start charging for our services is the immediacy of the exchange, which is that idea of, you know, when we, when you have a job that you work for a company somewhere, money just shows up in your bank account every couple of weeks or every month. And you don't have that sort of direct, I did this and got that feeling. But when you do a consult, certainly in the beginning where people might just be paying you in cash or by check, you sit down, you have a conversation, and at the end of it, you ask the other person to give you some money. And that's a feeling that many of us or that experience, you know, really pushes a lot of buttons, not just around money, but about self-worth and do you feel you've added value? So I think the whole beginner pricing or the starting astrologer pricing piece, it's not just as simple as this is what the work is worth. It's how you feel comfortable about that. And uh, that's a really... um you know, it's a really good point to keep in mind. And I think, I mean, I think I always say to students, if you can aim up to about, you want to try and get yourself up to about a hundred dollars an hour, but if you have to start at 50 an hour, cause you feel more comfortable there, or you want to come in at 75, or even if it's 20 bucks in the beginning, cause all you're doing is practicing that immediacy and that exchange. Um, yeah, but it's, it's a tricky thing. There's a lot to work through internally. Yeah. yeah I like, but Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, Kelly, I like what you said there about the immediacy of the exchange. So, you know, we all, you know, we often exchange our time, energy and action for money, but it's abstracted. Um, mm. And like, yes. you know, when I, if I think about when I was uh, like 22 and working at Radio Shack at the mall, um, I would just, you know, I would get my paycheck, but I didn't feel, what should we say? It wasn't super important to me that I do the very best job possible for my boss because he was just the local manager of a chain of a, you know, of a national corporation. And, you know, my, um, you could care about helping the people who came into the store but like that, they're not the people pay, they're paying you like the money changes hands like 10 times before you get paid. Right. Yeah. Whereas when you're an astrologer, one, like it's just one other person and there's no filter at all. Like they are giving you money. You are giving them your art. 
And so, and you care about them, right? Like you're like, oh, I really want to make sure this was worth it for this person, right? It's not like, yeah, you know, like you don't suit, you know, like you don't, I didn't um, have my, my heart did not overflow for Radio Shack, right? You know, who was giving me the money. I was like, you know, you can't even compare the immediacy and emotional weight of like trying to, um, you know, uh, be of value and service to one other person who you just talked to for an hour or two versus like putting in your time at, you know, at Burger King or Racks. I worked at Racks, which is, um, <laughs> it's sort of like Midwest only Arby's. It's pretty gross. Oh God. First jobs. That would be a funny conversation. But anyway, but you were, that was just all a way of saying, yes, the immediacy yeah. um, and the unfiltered nature of the exchange is really it's just, it's something most people have never experienced. Exactly. I like how you said the abstract, because that is like most of the time money just appears in our bank accounts or we get a check, but there isn't that direct interaction. And that, that changes when you go into, I don't think it's unique to astrology. I think it would be similar in all of the, the natural or hearing, healing therapies. So counselors or psychologists or massage therapists, even beauticians, there is a little bit more of an immediate sort of service or time or art and craft exchange for money. Um, and that's, that's different from what we're used to until we get into this type of work. And then you become much more familiar and comfortable with that. And then as you get more comfortable with it, that's when you can feel more comfortable to raise your prices. Sure. But definitely starting at that point, um, just because doing it for free for like friends and family is is one thing, but you don't have necessarily as much pressure there. But as soon as you've accepted some money for it, like you said, Austin, even if it's only $5, there's suddenly this pressure on you to to perform and like do the best job you can as an astrologer. And I think most most astrologers, that's useful to start getting into that mindset of having that pressure in order to force yourself to to do the best job that you can each time you do a consultation with somebody. And as a result of that tension, you'll have growth as an astrologer and as a consultant. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, yeah, that pressure is good as long as it's not overwhelming. Makes you bring your A-game. Yes. Right. That's exactly it. You want a bit of pressure because, and I'm the same. I think nerves are always good. It, it keeps you on your toes. It it's ensures it just keeps the adrenaline going, which keeps you sharp. Um, but you don't want so much so that you're stressing out because that becomes, particularly for the kind of work we do, it becomes very blocking. I like that point that you made, Austin, on that. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. All right. Um. So uh, I think those are the, the the discussion topics. So why don't we? Go ahead and jump into the forecast for uh, October at this point. Um, where where do you guys want to start with this? Well, so I mean, I mean, maybe we could start by just looking <laughs> at. I have an overview. I've got a couple of pieces of artwork for the astrology of October that I could share really quickly. Uh, the first one is a nice little thing that Paula Bellomini made me for my horoscopes this month. So I'm going to be using this for the. 12 different rising sign horoscopes that I'm doing on YouTube because I'm still going strong with that like three or four months later and it's still going really well. But um, this is the just a little chart that shows the planetary movements for uh, for October basically starting from October 1st and moving through until October 31st. So um, the big one of course this month is going to be uh, the Venus retrograde 
And I think that's going to be the primary thing that we're going to end up talking about this month. Because in terms of just major planetary aspects that are going on or other major movements, it seems like that's the main one. Uh, when I asked you this, it seemed like that was really the thing you were focused on, right, Austin? Yeah, everything else. I mean, everything builds around Venus. Everything opens up from there. That's Venus's movements are absolutely central. Okay, so we've got Venus uh, in Scorpio stationing retrograde. It stations retrograde right at the very beginning of the month on October 5th, right? Uh, yes, Friday, October 5th, which will be Saturday, October 6th, if you're down under. Okay, so um, I know that That's we really where the month starts, I think. <laughs> right, That's so that's not, a, not it's only like the main aspect for the month, but it's also basically what the month opens with is- that Venus stationing retrograde in early Scorpio. Yeah, and even though it doesn't station, it doesn't assume retrograde movement till the fifth, it's 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 stationary. It's you know, Venus is barely moving. It's already in the station degree on the first. Like it's just there, and then we get that that beginning to retreat motion on the fifth. But the mm, uh, the the energy the 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 energy will already be there you'll already be feeling it the events will already um have uh, be ready to take shape it's like you know the uh, the cauldron is already full with what's going to get served so venus is super slow at this point in late september and it gets to a point where it's practically like hovering around the same degree for for like a week or two once it gets close to that stationary point right so it's I mean, I guess that's one of the important things to understand about stations that sometimes new students don't realize is that even though in the ephemeris, it looks like this specific moment, like a like a specific time, like if you animate it in solar fire or you look at the charts where Venus is direct and then suddenly it's retrograde, like really it's like an arc where it's slowing down and turning around for this whole span of time during the the first part of the month, basically, right? Yeah, I mean, it's in the station degree on the first, right? Like it's, you know, it's, it's, it's barely moving. Okay. Yeah, Venus will be at 10 Scorpio for about two weeks, sort of a week before and a week after the station retrograde event, if you like. So it's a good point, Chris, to remind people of that Venus is just, she's just hanging in the sky and uh, just sitting at that 10 Scorpio which is which becomes then a, a really sensitive or pivotal degree in the landscape of October, if you like, right. or even just ten of the fixed signs, because there'll be a square. So, and, and that becomes part of like what a retrograde period is about: is is hitting that single note of that specific degree, ten degrees of Scorpio, for like a really long time. Whereas normally Venus would just very quickly move over that degree over the course of like a day or two. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like the emphasis or the exaggeration and and the theme, which I think is really kind of a theme for October, is the idea of kind of rather than having a lot of different things going on, it's really drilling down on a few specific things. It's like the going deep rather than kind of going wide. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, the... <laughs> That's Venus in Scorpio, right? Right? And so we, <laughs> talk about talk a repetition of theme. Yeah, right. And in, in that that's that's what this month looks like. It looks like um uh, uh it looks like a fractal where you get the same pattern repeating on macro and micro levels. And so let's just talk a little bit about Venus and Scorpio, right? So Venus just 
starting with the basics. So um, Venus is considered to be in its detriment in Scorpio, right? And how do you, how do you, how do y'all interpret that? Venus in detriment in Scorpio. Um, well, um, I'm like, where do we start? I mean, the well, theory just tells to start us with like simple technical and very then basics we'll unfold. Yeah, very basic. I mean, we've got Venus, the planet of unification, trying to pull things together. That's the pure raw energy of Venus is to pull together moist planet. And she's in the sign of Mars or a sign of Mars. And Mars is a dry sort of vibe, although it's Scorpio, so it's not a dry sign. But the nature of Mars is to kind of divide and dissect and, and even to, to separate or to conquer. So there is inherent tension between what Venus normally likes to do and the path she has to walk when she's in Scorpio. And I think Venus in Scorpio, like any planet in detriment, is sort of holding that tension between what it would like to do versus what is available for it to do. Uh, where would you guys go with this? Cause it's such a rich, there's so much rich symbolism here. I like that. Cause it's like planets. If Venus is in its own sign, then it gets to do the things that it usually likes to do, but instead Venus being in not its own sign, but instead a sign opposite to uh, the one that it, it normally lives in is like Venus excelling at things that aren't normal to Venus. So, so I guess part of the question is, what are some of the things that are not normal to Venus that Venus does well in Scorpio? Mm. Well, so you know, uh, so with this issue of planets in detriment, right? Planets in detriment are always opposite the signs that they rule. They're as far away from home as possible in that sense, right? And this is the the the, the Chris. I believe you're trying to get behind uh, the term exile for planets in detriment. Right. Yeah. So Venus, I'm still Venus trying to get, still trying to get on that. Still I, trying I like to promote it. that, like exile for because that's actually the term that's used in a number of other yeah. languages. Like in Spanish, uh, I learned this a few years ago, and I think possibly in French, like the they use the term exile more co commonly than the term detriment. I like it. Um, and yeah. so when you're in exile, you are by definition in a space that is not home. Right. It's, it means it's a negation of home, the negation of comfort. Uh, it's a negation of being surrounded by friends and family, right? It, you're in exile. And so Venus is exiled to Scorpio, right? You have to, um, banish her from the city, <laughs> right? She doesn't go willingly. Um, and so, you know, if we think about like, I don't know whether well, again, there are a lot of ways to go with this. I was going to make a specific point. But yeah. Oh, it, damn. I hate it when you lose it. No, it's okay. The, it's the, the, but Kelly, as you're saying, like it, Scorpio is a martial sign. Um, it's a, I would, you know, although cutting and severing are very much, um, you know, a core essential archetypal martial actions in Scorpio and also very martial is piercing. Right. Yes. The right. scorpion's tail pierces. Yes. Um, you know, weapons, there are weapons which cut. And there are weapons which crush and there are weapons which pierce, right? And Mars likes the sharp ones, right? The, um, if we look at the, the god of war, um, if we look at Ares or, you know, Roman Mars, or if we, uh, go east and we look at like Kartikeya, the, the, the god associated with the planet Mars, uh, has a spear actually much more often than he has a sword. And it's certainly a spear which the scorpion wields. 
right? And are you and, bringing this up because of the recent discussion, like the Twitter discussion about Mars? Or no, is this I don't. Natural. I, uh, I, this is I, just I, Austin I'm, talking. Okay. I'm, I'm unaware yeah. of that. Um, yeah. There, but, there was just somebody that was promoting the idea that Mars doesn't have anything to do with sex because it's severing and separating, and therefore only Venus can can be have those associations. Um, but then the counterpoint that was never brought up in the discussion is the thing that you just said, which is that Mars has, even though severing and separating is part of the archetype of Mars or a large part, it has this whole other side about piercing as this sort of like separate um, facet of its archetype. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I guess what I was saying hooks into that. No, I try to, I've uh, been trying to hide from the internet for a couple months. So I missed that. But yeah, and so anyway, we have piercing, right? Um, and so, you know, if you somebody, if you talk about someone's heart being pierced, right? Or drilling is also an energy, a movement pattern that mm. Scorpio in particular brings up. Um, and we talk about drilling into the heart, right? And this is what Venus and Scorpio, especially retrograde does. Whenever you've got retrograde motion, you have the planet making a loop in the sky. It's a circular, you know, we could see that as drilling or circling rather than just moving straight forward. And, you know, it's important to know that during Venus retrogrades, that's when um, that those are the periods where Venus gets between us and the sun. And so it's closer than normal. And so there's, um, you know, there, there's a um, sort of a put um, uh, the Venus is as close as deep as possible. And so there's something underworldy about that. There's something which pierces the surface and gets to the depths. And when you get, when you do that with Venusian topics, a lot of, uh, archetypally, a lot of Venusian things like partying and like being polite and having people be polite to you and just having nice interactions, those depend on not drilling down to what's really going on. When you drill down enough beneath any Venusian surface, you will find things which contradict that. Even the best relationships have uh, there in, in even the best relationships, you'll find fears, you'll find trust issues, you'll find old hurts, which impact, um, you know, which when accessed like, you know, emotional oil wells will surface and coach you with sticky goo and sometimes catch on fire. And so with Venus and Scorpios in just with natives that I've known and that I've read for. Um, part of the the detriment is that that piercing, digging, trying to find the truth uh, action, which is so characteristic of Scorpio. If you try super hard to find out, you know, the truth about someone and how they really feel, you're going to find things that it's very difficult to relate to and that it'll make it harder to trust that person. Right. It's why, like, you know, if you're um, if you want to be diplomatic, you want to get along with everybody, don't drill down into everything uh, or, you know, into them and their entire history and, you know, all that. Anyway, I've been monologuing. I'll let you guys jump in. You hear what I'm saying, I think. Oh, totally. I think you're making I mean, I love the drilling into the heart. That's a beautiful someone can hashtag or tweet that. That's a beautiful uh, symbolism that pulls together Venus in Scorpio, Venus retrograde in Scorpio for sure. And when you were talking about the exile, which I love, I've got to keep remembering that for a planet in detriment. It reminds me of that idea of a being a stranger in a strange land, um, because I think too there is that idea of you know Venus is 
is kind of having to do things maybe without her normal repertoire of skills or talents. And so she isn't as smooth um, or as polished as she normally is when she's in Scorpio. There's maybe some rough edges. It's more of a sandpaper kind of vibe. And I liked what you said there about like, it reminded me of, you know, the truth can hurt. And I think that's a very, like, it's a very potent or something I think about all the time with Venus in Scorpio is that she keeps looking for more, wants to go deeper, or she keeps peeling back the layers. And what she finds can be an absolute or a raw, honest kind of visceral truth, but it's not necessarily going to be something that's comfortable or that binds you together more closely. It's more likely to put to be something that feels a bit like a a stone in your shoe or a thorn in your side where it's like, oh, now I know this and then how do we proceed from here given that that maybe sits uncomfortably with me or or within the context of whatever that relationship is. Yeah, definitely. Also, I would say part of the challenge, um, you know, it's also Venus's job to reveal the beauty in things and Mm. to help us find joy in experiences and sensations. And so if we look at what the landscape of Scorpio is full of, um, you know, we get a lot of, um, uh, we get horror imagery, right? And obviously, um, people wouldn't make and watch horror films if there wasn't something there, but it's a challenge to find beauty in it. There's, there's a challenge to find joy in it. It's, you know, it's not the normal set of experiences and images and sensations that we find joy and beauty in. So it's a it challenge it's a challenge for the planet, in this case Venus, to do its job, which is to find the beauty, to find the joy, to find pleasure in. Right. Like the the gothic a very literal manifestation sometimes can be like the goth aesthetic. Uh, I remember one of my first uh friends in like high school when I started learning astrology, I thought it was funny that she had Scorpio rising. And when I started reading about Scorpio rising and um, I I think also Venus and Scorpio, it sort of made sense because that was part of her aesthetic was that darker sort of seeing something um, aesthetically appealing in that darker aesthetic. Yeah. It's 100% goth. Um, It's yeah. In a sense, it's going to be Halloween for two months. I was just going to say it's all Halloween. I just realized, Austin, I think our spouses have something in common to do with their ascendant sign. Or maybe not. Scorpio? Yeah. Is that? I can't remember. Yeah. yeah. It's a secret. You can't tell people. (laughs) Can't tell can't tell people that they've got Scorpio. The Scorpio risings will be angry with us. You cannot talk about it. But, I mean, that's the only holiday that my husband wants to decorate the house for. It's all, it's Halloween planning as soon as we get to September. And I'm like, and I do not have Scorpio rising. So it's the holiday that I'm like, I don't want to do anything for. Um, But he goes to town with Scorpio. Um, And I think, you know, it's also making me think when I do consults for people that have the moon or Venus in Scorpio natally, I... I'm always, I always try to be very aware that the Venus and the moon in Scorpio feel things at this much deeper level than the rest of us are even aware of. And so there is a sense of sometimes being misunderstood or being sensitive to undercurrents that most of us are not normally attuned to. And I think with this extended Venus retrograde in Scorpio period, one of the things we're all going to need to do is, uh, 
we're going to be tuned into things or sensitized to things that we are normally oblivious to or that we normally miss. And that can bring, you know, stuff to the surface. Yeah. Can it also sink us beneath the surface? Well, yeah. One of the things that I've observed and felt during Venus retro, or excuse me, during Venus and Scorpio, as well as I was very aware of the last time Venus went into Scorpio, um, is having a hard time wanting to be social because I was in a sunken place, not necessarily Mm. like an awful place, but just like, you know, like the emotional the the directionality of my mind it was like inward towards concealed emotions not expressing outward right like spiraling inward maybe on a quest but not radiating outward right and so a lot of times it's just it's easier to be introverted it's harder to yes. like be extroverted um and you know when when it's something that's happening in the sky and it's hitting everyone to a greater or lesser extent, it can be harder to connect because everybody else is, or maybe two out of three people or half the people there are having a harder time connecting than they normally would too. Cause they're kind of, you know, brewing something on the inside. And so it's, it's, um, you know, it's, we could say it's antisocial where Venus is social, uh, Venus in Scorpio, especially Venus retrograde in Scorpio is, um, antisocial. Sure. By, by direction. Go yeah. Ahead. Although it's, it's like intensely more interpersonal focused on like singular single mindedness and in, in maybe relationship rather than spreading that out to everybody. Right. It's not. And that's a both Venus retro and Venus direct in Scorpio is that it's um, like the scorpion is single pointed, right? It's not. Yes. It does. It's, it's not, again, it's not, dis, it's not, um, radiant. It's piercing. And so, you know, it's that one relationship with that one person. Um, it's, you know, it's, it seeks, you know, Venus and Scorpio seeks intimacy, but, and greater and greater intimacy. But, you know, you find things on your way to intimacy. Something, sure. something happened on the way to intimacy. <laughs> Well, and that raises a, that 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 then leads to maybe another thing that sometimes comes up with uh, like Venus and Scorpio, which can be the idea we we're just talking about of like single-minded focus on relationship can also sometimes lead to other emotions like jealousy or things like that, or an Indeed. intense intense sense of 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 that, or or a very intense sense of that. Totally. Yeah. I mean, and we. Sorry, go Austin. Oh no, I was just somebody in the um somebody in the comments, Nathan writes that Venus and Scorpio can also be joining through conflict, which I agree with. Mm-hmm. That's and a beautiful that, way sometimes of that can it. be you know, there uh that can be so it might one of the things that it'll that might bring up for people if this is their style, um, is relationships that are kind of dependent on stinging each other sting i sting you you sting me that have that like conflict and Mm. mutual poisoning as part of their their pathological side or just becoming aware uh, of those dynamics in otherwise healthy relationships is you know to to what degree is this sustaining us and this is not (laughs) perhaps we can do it differently or better yeah, it's that idea of those sort of couples or relationship situations where you get locked into the arguing together or the disagreeing or the the causing pain. And that brings up, you know, something that I thought of when you were speaking earlier, Austin, which is 
particularly Venus in Scorpio or Venus in Aries would probably have a bit of this too, but it's that fine line between what brings you pleasure and what actually causes you pain or hurt or harm. And that can come up in a psychological sense, in a sexual sense, in an emotional sense, but it's, it's sort of exploring that edge of can we make this sharp and intense and exciting and, you know, how close can we go to that edge where it becomes pain and, and do we want to actually go a little bit into the, the, the side on which there is some pain, but it's that very, very sort of fine line there. Right. And, well, and what is the yeah. appropriate cocktail of pleasure and pain? Right, because there's no, mm. there's no intimacy without pain, right? At least sometimes. And, well, at least without the risk of of there being great pain, for no, sure. No, I mean, if you want to have a relationship for with someone for more than a month, if you want to stay intimately connected oh, yeah. with someone, like of course, you know, um, this reminds me of a dream I had like ten years ago, where um, a mouse with a scorpion tail stung me, and in the dream, the it, like I I had this like revelation uh where or i had this experience where all pleasure and pain became just different flavors of one sensation um it was like this weird moment of enlightenment caused brought about by a mouse with a scorpion tail anyway this this has me thinking about it this is so random but so on point hashtag we need to find, dreams yeah we need to find that mouse that might be really <laughs> helpful this fall Totally. And then, of course, we're really dealing with the shadow side, if you like to use that language of Venus, which is, I think one of you guys alluded to this, you know, the idea of betrayal or jealousy, obsession, um, it's emotions or the desire for togetherness that can kind of run a mark or run into, you know, the, it's into the darker territory rather than the lightness of, you know, compromise and togetherness type of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, and issues with control as well. It's part of that. The power play. So I was thinking, I was doing some research, and one of the things that happened pretty much every time Venus went retrograde in Scorpio for the last 50, 60 years is that there were famous kidnappings. And ah. that's so like, that's so like the dark, like that's, I'm going to go, I'm going to possess this person. I'm going to kidnap them, right? They're going to be mine, right? And these are yes. some of the issues. Um, you know, we deal with in the scorpionic complex in general. It's interesting to see them, you know, expressed in, in that extreme hyperbolic literal form. But there is that like feeling controlled, um, mm. feeling like you've been, you know, like you're kept somewhere by someone or, um, real or desiring, um, to control more of a person's life than is right. Because you know mm. you want them all to yourselves, you know it's it's um you know it can start from a place of love, but it gets a little twisted on the way, and those dynamics in a you know non criminal insane form uh, are present in you know lots of relationships. It doesn't mean that yeah. you're you know a psychotic person because <laughs> because because you have some issues with control or or that you're attracted to people um who you know who have issues with control and, you know, being on being, letting another person be in control is a real, is part of your relationship with control, right? Mm -hmm. They're both control issues. Um, yeah. but yeah, cause the scorpion not only has a stinger, it has claws. Claws are for control. Yes. 
Sure. And, and in a non literal sense to take, you know, that maybe kidnapping as the extreme, like physical, literal manifestation, like the other end of the spectrum within that, but also that's more relatable can sometimes be issues of like manipulation or, or yeah. Venus and Scorpio and issues surrounding manipulation, both overtly, but sometimes um, covertly or, or more subtly and how um, themes of manipulation can sometimes play out in different ways either consciously or or sometimes subconsciously. Yeah. Well, and fear of manipulation. Mm. Maybe somebody does something, maybe you're in like a newish relationship and somebody like does something which like pings a pattern that you've been subject to before that caused you a lot of pain. And maybe that person really is just a repetition and maybe it just looked like it for a little bit, but all that trust stuff flares up. You armor up and try to control the situation so they can't control the situation. And, and now you're retrograding, you know? Right. That's great. Cause that yeah. then leads to another, the other side of that, which is the uh, paranoia. So paranoia yeah. or like fear of something that leads to paranoia that may or may be may or may not be an actual thing, but may be just like imagined uh, based on fears. Yeah. Well, and so this is nice. We kind of naturally got to one of the images that I've been working with and trying to write about this and think about it. One thing I got a lot was like basically sewers that is like a, like Venus retrograde in Scorpio is going to make a lot of us deal with what's in the emotional sewer, you know, like all the like, you know, jealousy, anger, hurt, mistrust, fear that we usually just flush. We're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's not like that flush, but that stuff doesn't always, you know, just like in the physical sewer system, like that stuff doesn't stop existing. It just goes to the sewer place. Right. And so there's, you know, the, um, the, uh, <laughs> the, the toilet, which, uh, which overflows <laughs> is, um, you, the emotional toilet, which overflows, is one of the themes here. And so, in dealing with that, that right? Is that going to be the episode title? Is that? <laughs> well, so, so check this out. I was talking, so I was uh, uh, in Seattle, I was talking to a friend of mine uh, who is a fantastic, passionate, genius madman. Um, it's uh, 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 Joseph Uccello, who actually laid out the uh, celestial art and 36 faces and is an author in his own right. And he was telling me that he was like, dude, I've been getting really into sewers lately. He's like, I've been walking around at night, like recording sewer sounds. And I was like, as your astrologer, I think that the upcoming Venus retrograde in Scorpio is the perfect time to explore sewers. And then he was, he was telling me about doing research on the Roman sewage system and there is literally um, a goddess of the sewers, and it was Venus Cloacina, who is like mm. the, uh, the the Venus of the sewer system. And I was like, awesome. We've got, we now have a name for the patron goddess of the Venus retrograde in Scorpio. It's Venus Cloacina. Love it. Yeah, uh, that's good. But so you said, <laughs> no, what? I don't, you're just sorry. I don't, I never have a good transition from, uh, these things, but you said that you like normally, I like the image where you said that normally these are things that just like, you know, flow through you. And then those emotions pass by just like a Venus normally will like pass through Scorpio over the course of like what, like three weeks. But here it's actually literally like slowing down and stopping and getting stuck there for some reason. And the flow and, is getting reversed. <laughs> 
Right. Uh, <gasps> oh my gosh. So yeah, that is actually not that. That's not bad imagery. I don't know. Maybe we can try to come up with better imagery um, for that. But that's pretty pretty apt. Well, and also sewage is that which, like, if we're talking about um, standard Venus, right? Like Venus strong and you know uh, in Venus's sign and like getting to do all the normal things. Um, it's those. It's things uh, you're dealing with material that is appealing to the senses. And so the mm. revolting quality, like the bodily yeah. revolting quality of sewage, that's what we're dealing with. How do I find beauty in this? Right. I mean, you know, cause there's, it's, I, I myself have at times underestimated the emotional challenge of Venus and Scorpio by thinking of like fun horror movies and, you know, cool goth style. And like that, that is certainly a good example of like successful Venus and Scorpio redeeming the Scorpionic on Venusian terms. But those are like you the, know, the easy examples. What? Those are like the easy examples. Yeah. And, but there's also the sewage where it's like, this doesn't make like cool goth stylings. That's just sewage, right? Like that's not like aesthetically challenging. That's just gross. Right? right. And there's, and so, you know, it is both like, you know, uh, high goth fashion and fun horror movies, but it's also, you know, it's also sewage. Well, what that made me think of as you were talking about sewage and, you know, the Venus and how can we find pleasure or I couldn't quite get to pleasure in the sewage pipes, the sewage <laughs> pipes, but I got to useful or rich or productive, which made me think of the compost. Um, so a compost being, obviously you put all your food scraps or your yard waste and you turn it over and, you know, over a period of time, this becomes incredibly nutritious for the soil. And so I wonder if that's part of the, the symbolic imagery of the point or the purpose, because as we've alluded to, or maybe we've said in passing, Venus is retrograde in Scorpio every eight years, almost to the day. Um, and we get these really intense periods where we have to kind of compost and mulch in all the stuff. I think of the last eight years, cause I always think about Venus retro and Scorpio on these eight year trends. And so it's, it's that time to maybe go into the sewage pipes or go into the compost heap and just turn things over and see what, what needs to come out that, you know, can be put to use and what needs to sit in the pile for the next cycle. Basically. I think, yeah, it's I think that's a hundred percent right. It's the alchemical thing, right? Yeah. It's like, this the is, alchemical thing. This is the matter and it can become something useful, but it's not useful right now. And you have to reclaim it or claim it uh, in order to change it. You know, when we just yes. kind of like shove things away, it puts them in stasis. A lot, some of the time, they just, you know, like we can't, you know, you're just like, yep, nope, I never feel that way. But if you're like, yeah, I do feel this way and it's not good, but it won't change if I pretend that I don't. Right. And that's yes. the like actually putting it on the compost piles, like finding a place for it in your awareness rather than just flushing it. Exactly. Yeah that it's, it will have something in it that you will need or that you will need to distill. Um, and so we can't just push it away. We can. It's just not going to work out. <laughs> it's not going to. Well, it's you. I guess that's when you're going to end up with a sewage backup. 
Yeah. Your pipes will be blocked it, or it, exploding or it, it will definitely return. Correct. But I, I in think, an unpalatable way. <laughs> yes. Um and I think <laughs> I think that the Jupiter being in being co present with Venus for the Scorpio part of the retrograde um is very much like that's where the like I, I feel like people are going to be able to I think Jupiter is going to help this process be more productive. And I've been seeing with Jupiter and Scorpio the whole for almost a year now, um, a very strong like poison into medicine thing, you know, sewage or yes, you know, sewage into compost for the for the fresh, you know, for the fresh bed of roses. Um, and so I think Jupiter, I think it's nice that we have Jupiter there. Um, but we should talk about Uranus. I think we've gotten. I think we've gotten yeah, some we pretty do. good that- stuff going on with just like the sense of the sense and imagery for Venus in Scorpio retro. That was the thing that I noticed because I was starting to work on my monthly horoscopes and I was animating the chart and wasn't seeing like a lot of major like outer planet aspects or hard aspects or other things going on this month besides the Venus retrograde. But what I did notice is in animating the chart and going through day by day, especially if you speed it up quickly. Just all the inner planets like going into Scorpio this month, but every time a planet would switch into Scorpio, it just immediately opposes Uranus, which is sitting there at about zero degrees of Taurus for most of the month. And therefore, every time, like when when Mercury goes into Scorpio, when the Sun goes into Scorpio, when the Moon goes into Scorpio, when Venus retrogrades back to early Scorpio and moves back into Libra, um, they hit that that opposition with Uranus almost immediately, which is really you know, much different, much, uh, yeah, it's, it's much different compared to like a normal year where you have everything move into Scorpio in the fall like this, um, but not usually running into Uranus. Yeah. Well, and yeah, there's that. And also, so before, before the sun and Mercury enter Scorpio, they're in Libra. What's Libra ruled by? Oh, it's ruled by Venus. And then, oh, well, when they leave Venus ruled Libra, where do they go? Oh, they go to conjoin venus right there's no which is one of the eight ways there's no getting away from (laughs) from from venus in october and yeah and then there's the opposition which is um the opposition with uranus and taurus which venus will have done once by the time october starts and we'll do a second time in october and then we'll do a third time in november and the I mean, and the the full moon, which I'm sure we can get into later, it's just worth noting, the full moon is on top of Uranus in a Venus-ruled sign and opposite Venus retrograde. This is part of, you know, um, why we were like, okay, it's it's the Venus and Scorpio show because everything it's comes back to it. Well, it does. And if, we, if we're going to pop out a few dates, um, we've talked about the Venus station retrograde early in the month, October 5th. And then we've got the Venus, uh, well, Mars coming back or coming forward to square Venus while she's retrograde around the 10th. Uh, Can we pause that on one, that Austin? for a second? Yeah. yeah I think that's, that's really important. important. Yeah. So yeah. what degree did Mars originally station at? Was it at nine Aquarius? I believe it was nine. Okay. So it's going to clear its Correct. shadow finally by like October 8th or 9th. But because it's still in that first half of Aquarius, that means that that's the other thing that all those planets are hitting when they're going through early Scorpio, not just the opposition with Uranus, but they're also often squaring Uranus not long afterwards as well, or squaring Mars not long afterwards as well. 
Yeah. Yes. Well, and so, I mean, Mars literally clears its station on like within a day of it squaring Venus exactly. Um, and you know, these two, these two, uh, this, the Venus and Mars cycles this year are so entwined, right? They, they station almost exactly 90 degrees away from each other. Um, Venus is station or excuse me. Yeah. Venus is retrograde station is in Scorpio, which is a Mars ruled sign while it's squared to Mars, who's just getting done with all that, you know, that four month arc. And so there's such a handy, and of course, both of them were angular to Uranus throughout the retrogrades. And so there's such a like handing off from the events of the Mars retrograde over the summer to the Venus retrograde of the fall or Q3 to Q4. Right. Literally the day that Mars is finally, finally completing the last, last phases of that retrograde uh, that it's been doing all for the past few months, Venus stations retrograde basically within a few days. Yeah, it's um, passing the fun baton. Yes. I'm, I'm going to yeah. try and sharing this- my screen again really quick. Let me know if it slows yeah, down. Yeah, see if we all can right. get that. Because um, I think that square is, is kind of critical just in that, you know, Venus is in Mars's sign and she's encountering the ruler of her, her current sign while she's retrograde via a square aspect. And yeah, the moon, as we can see there, the moon is is with um, Venus around the same time. Right. There we go. So you guys can see it. So like, for example, yeah. October 10th, Venus is squaring yeah. Mars exactly at 10 Scorpio to 10 Aquarius. And it looks like the moon catches up and hits uh, Venus at 10 Scorpio at roughly the same time. And Mercury has just ingressed into Scorpio a day or so earlier. And it's pretty much exactly opposing Uranus exactly opposite Uranus yeah one Scorpio to one Taurus that day so that's I mean one of the things I often do when I consider the month ahead is I try to look for some of those days where the energy feels a little bit more charged or there's a bit more going on and this sort of October 10th period is one of those days that stands out um they don't know the, the days in the month don't always stand out for good reasons but it's just there's a lot of activity and Venus squaring Mars that day definitely feels like, you know, hitting bumps in the road, hitting a block, you know, being frustrated, being irritated, short tempers, short fuses, um, maybe making rash decisions just because you, you know, you're kind of so fed up. So there's some of the things just to be mindful of on that day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For four or five different reasons. One of the things that this makes me, makes me think of is how, uh, Venus retrogrades often bring about a rearrangement of relational dynamics, um, you know, in friendships, in romantic relationships, in marriages, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, there, there's often like the existing dynamics are often brought into question, right? Because when Venus dwells on an area, like Venus by staying in the same set of degrees for much longer is literally dwelling on a topic. And so Mm -hmm. when we dwell on a topic, we become more aware of it. And so that's a piece of any and every Venus retrograde. However, this one kind of, this one, I would say, you know, to the second power or at least times two, because we have Venus opposed Uranus for virtually the entire time, depending on what orb we want to use. And Uranus loves to change shit up, right? Uranus loves to um, disrupt, uh, 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 ongoing dynamics and do anything else, do nothing instead, do something experimental, do something, just do anything else. And so the, like, 
you know, the, the, the relational rearrangement component of this Venus retrograde, I expect to be quite significant, especially because Uranus is in a Venus ruled sign. And so, you know, being configured to Venus so long it's configured to its ruler, it's easier to make changes when a planet is configured to its ruler. And it is interesting too, that we've got these links between Mars and Uranus coming up where the activity this month just keeps triggering Mars and Uranus because both of those planets have this sort of similar kind of destabilizing, uncomfortable, you know, not on firm footing kind of quality to it, to them. Right. Uh, More of a divisive sort of quality in different ways. Yeah. I, I know they're not the same, but I do find that, yeah, they both have that Maybe they're coming from different places, but the divisiveness, the solo kind of quality or that sort of prickly quality, um, certainly the, you know, Uranus, obviously freedom, but Mars, you know, that, you know, fight to do it their own way. So there is still sort of a headstrong quality, I guess. Right. If Uranus is freedom, like Mars is like independence in a sense. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It's tricky to kind of pass them out, but they seem to have that sort of similar tone. Maybe self-sufficiency is like a positive or constructive aspect of that for Mars. Mm. Yes. Independence. Yeah. Independence is a good one for Mars. So there's that day for sure. Um, And then is there anything we want to talk about through the middle of the month or do we want to skip to? We should probably at least mention the new moon. Yeah, the lunation. Oh, yeah, the new moon. We've kind of skipped right past it. The new moon on October 8th at 15 Libra. So 15 Libra, uh, October 8th, new moon, sun conjoins the moon. Uh, Let's see, close aspects. It looks like it's squaring Pluto at 18 Capricorn. Uh, This is shortly before Mercury ingresses into Scorpio just a day later. So Mm -hmm. Mercury is still in Libra. And Venus is just hovering right around that stationary degree at 10 Scorpio. So uh, what do you guys think about this new moon? I guess the, it's the other lunation that's really the one that stands out the most this month, I guess. This is one is a little bit less significant looking in some respects. Yeah, I don't know if Austin has any words. I mean, my sort of quick thoughts are it's a lunation ruled by Venus. Venus is in station and square Mars. So there is a bit of a, I know the new moons, we often think, you know, intention setting or plan for the month ahead or fresh start, but this almost feels like a pause type of new moon Um, or you're trying to go forward, but there is a, you know, a big ogre, the Mars square to Venus. There's, There's something that might be, I'm thinking like a troll or something like it's you want to do this one thing, but there's a a necessary distraction or tangent that might might take up some time in this first first part of the lunation cycle. Yeah, I mean, I think this is where the sun and moon agree that it's time to have a sewer adventure. Have a sewer adventure. (laughs) They're booking their tickets on the sewer express. Is that what's happening? Yeah, they're both like, yep, we agree. It's Venus time, right? (laughs) Yeah. so in order to look forward, you have to look back. That would be the intention of that that new moon ruled by Venus stationary down. retrograde. Yeah, and I would down. say, you know, in order to balance the scales, it depends on what we pull up, right? What we find down mm. below, right? There's there there's underworld um there's underworld data that needs to come in before we can balance these scales. And that middle decan of Libra is in particular about 
contracts, like the contracts between people, both emotionally mm. and financially, which is just a way of it's the Saturn rule Deccan, right? It's a way of like cementing a relational dynamic. And so it's sort of like, oh, okay, well, this is the, you know, this is the deal. And maybe I don't, maybe I want out of this deal, right? Or, oh, this deal looks like it's going to be good. Maybe I should do a background check first. Um, but you know, it, it's the, it's the relational dynamic as, yeah, uh, as solidified by a contract, a deal, an agreement, an understanding, um, that's all dependent on Venus and what Venus finds. Sure. So that, that reflectiveness or that looking back in it of itself, sometimes in other retrogrades, commonly, I think we, we sometimes end up associating with sometimes like literally can be like looking back on past relationships or like reassessing past relationships um, or sometimes things that happened earlier in like current relationships. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah. So that seems like a, a a common theme with the Venus retrograde just in general, but from this one, because it's taking place in Scorpio, there's like a much more um, deep quality to it of going back sometimes and dredging up things that are were sometimes difficult or where there were more intense feelings surround surrounding them in order to I mean because one of the things that's interesting is that this Venus isn't going to stay retrograde in Scorpio the, the entire time but instead it's going to retrograde back into Libra um, what de degree does it actually station direct at 25 mid-november yep 25 okay and so it, yeah, yeah. It'll look the the beginning and end of this will look very different. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's almost like a kind of a dark beginning to our retrograde story or a much more intense sort of beginning, but then retrograding back um, into its home sign and a little bit of a lighter conclusion to it. Yeah, the Venus retrograde has a very different quality or tonal feeling. Like when we have this conversation for November, I feel like we'll be talking about quite different imagery. Yeah, absolutely. No, There'll it's, be no it's, sewers. It makes me think of like... I don't know. It kind of makes me think of Snow White. <laughs> oh my god! Did you just use a positive image, Austin? Well, I was just thinking, like you know, it kind of begins with like an evil witch. Um, the evil, yeah, the woman, the one in the mirror, and the then one that gives and the then it, and then it ends with a Disney princess. Because uh, Venus and Libra can be a little Disney princess. No offense to yeah. Venus and Libra or the Disney princesses. <laughs> Yeah, but it's it's like how sometimes in like movies or narratives you have that like dramatic twist that takes place like two thirds of the way through the story in order to add like dramatic tension. Um, but in this instance, like the dramatic tension is happening in the first half of this retrograde cycle rather than the second half, or rather than like two thirds of the way in. Yeah, I mean, there's um, there's definitely a twist at the conclusion too. The twist is Uranus is back in Aries now. And the, yes, the third, a... the third opposition um, with Uranus is in a different set of signs, and so that, like, the ending looks really different than the beginning. Hmm. Okay, which kind of feeds to that analogy around um, going back over old territory. I mean, we symbolically, you know, whatever we pull that image with Venus retrograde, or even Venus in Scorpio, because it's things that have been held onto or hidden. But you're you're so spot on there, Austin. It's late November, Venus back in Libra, opposing Uranus, who is now back in Aries. 
And that is, I mean, that's a completion of the Venus retrograde story, but there may be something completing or ending or, you know, from the past to do with the Uranus in Aries story there as well, um, because both of those have that um, kind of tone to them, I guess. So the ending is very different from what, I guess, to summarize it from what we're saying, where you think this story is going to go based on um, the start of October or how events unfold in October is not where it's going to end up when you consider where things go in November. Yeah. All right. It's just an unexpected conclusion, but it, it looks like yeah. we get both the the beginning of the story of the Venus retrograde story, as well as the middle of the story in October, because it looks like the Sun-Venus yes, conjunction. Yes, the conjunction, uh, November, uh, October 26th. Right. Well, and so, so let's 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 but do the full then. moon and then the conjunction because that's the sequence. Yeah. That's the okay. sequence chronolo- chronologically. Sorry, you, you can't offend Austin and our Austin and my sensibilities about timeline timelines. Yeah, I'm just <laughs> looking. At, there, I guess there's nothing else really to cover before then. It's like Mercury goes into Scorpio uh, on the ninth, which we've already mentioned. But then that pretty much brings us to. The, sun- the only thing, yeah, that, like that middle week of October, I mean, Mercury passes over Venus in Scorpio. Um, and there's a couple of other Mercury aspects, but there aren't any super. It's the 15th, I think, that Mercury passes over Venus. And whether we just get some, I, I always think of you now, Austin, with the broadcast, you know, with Mercury triggering oh. planets doing other things, you know. It's like Mercury's giving Venus the megaphone. I think it'll be totally your. Yeah, I think it'll yeah. be helpful for like thinking through some of what we've been feeling we'll be like okay this is a little like i can you know um contain some of this in my intellect as well you know get it's getting your head around it a little bit better yeah putting putting it into words having a conversation that maybe seems a little bit more clear rather than you know deep or intense or uh, skewed. Yeah. And whether it's Venus like, you know, the Venus retrograde is something wholly external or it's like a really intense internal thing. Like Mercury helps bring, bring a little, uh, makes things thinkable. Um, you know, might bring some, some relevant facts, uh, to, uh, you know, up. Yes. But yeah. Sorry uh, about but that full other moon. Other than that, there's, yeah, there's really nothing. It's the, I mean, the full moon is sort of like, it's quite a full moon. All the bells and whistles. Okay, so it looks like this is taking place on October 24th. Uh, Mm -hmm. The sun has moved into Scorpio just a day or so earlier, and the sun is at one degree of Scorpio, and the moon ingresses into Taurus, where it immediately conjoins Uranus, and then immediately after that, very shortly afterwards, it opposes the sun, and we have the full moon at one degree of Taurus. Uh, so conjunct Uranus at zero degrees of Taurus and opposing the sun at one Scorpio and Venus at four Scorpio. So this is just shortly before that sun-Venus conjunction, which marks the middle point of the Venus retrograde as well. Yeah. You know, Kelly, I can remember us having conversations about the full moon in Taurus from previous years and about yeah. how it's such a nice stabilizing <laughs> grounding we nation. used to love it didn't we <laughs> yes it's it's going to be different for the next seven years um yeah and so that that's normally what you would expect out of a full moon in taurus it balances that intense volatile mobile uh scorpio energy with like nice grounding solidifying taurian qualities but this year 
as well as some several of the next years we've got uranus in taurus and this year the the moment the moon's moment of peak fullness occurs one degree away from uranus while you know while the sun while venus is retrograded back to very close to the sun and very close to opposite the moon and uranus it's a very uh I mean, it really sets up this sort of opposition theme, if you like, because we have the full moon on the 24th and on the 31st, the Venus-Uranus opposition peaks. So that last sort of week of October, the seesaw energy or the, the flipping between different scenarios is is very strong. There's a real polarization, if you like, with Uranus in the mix. So the twist, the unexpected turn, things moving in a direction that wasn't part of the plan. Um, yeah, this is this is the first of our non-stable and safe Taurus full moons. And and this is um, it's also square the nodes pretty much exactly. Mm. So is this the middle point then between like the last Eclipses? eclipse series and the next one? Yeah. It, yeah. yeah. Okay. And that's so the, this might that's the south bending. So that's as low. That's as far beneath the um the 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 plane that the sun and Earth are on as the moon is going to get at this point. So that's the bottom before it starts coming up again towards the north node. So that's okay. south. So so in that case, it, whatever this like ev- event is or the sequence of events that are taking place around the time of this full moon is potentially tied into the sort of sequence um, in between whatever those eclipses are about for some people that have been taking place. I guess the last, I mean, we're, we're talking about the eclipse sequence that's still wrapping up in Leo and Aquarius, basically, and this would be the midpoint between them. Yep. Okay. So that might be important then for some people in terms of being able to contextualize some of the events that take place at this time within the broader context of like what's been going on over the past year or two um, and will then be continued on three months later in the next set of eclipses early next year. Yeah, there'll be a tie-in. Right. But the, I mean, just the full moon on Uranus is enough. Like I think that's what it's going to look like in the foreground it's going to look like yeah. a full moon conjunct Uranus ruled by Venus retrograde, right? And so that this could be and will be for some people revelatory. Like a lot yeah. of the Venus retrograde stuff and the Uranus stuff, it's going to be like, oh, this is the like change that's happening in me. This is the change I'm ready to make. And it's also going to be, um, uh, 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 what's the word, a hot mess for uh, a certain (laughs) other portion of the population. And then there are going to be people for whom it's both where out of the hot mess rises the, the steam of revelation. I don't know. Mm. (laughs) You're really milking these analogies, Austin. But I think that, I know I love it. The the revel the revelatory theme. I mean, I always think of a full moon as bringing revelations because it's it's this illuminating kind of vibe that brings light that helps to bring things out of the darkness into the light so that it doesn't make negative things positive. It's not like that, but it helps you see or understand things that you had previously been you know dark to or that you hadn't understood or you hadn't seen in their full context. 
And so to have that energy of the full moon right smack bang on Uranus um, and so tightly conjunct Uranus, I mean, the the revelations then have the shock factor or the the unexpected, you know, they like the hot mess is is probably not um, a technical term, but is very apt for the the some of us are going to have these real a really chaotic few days where we're just kind of ping ponging from one thing to the next, and Uranus always makes things fast, you know, so everything is happening at once or things are happening now that you weren't, you thought weren't going to happen for quite some time. It just sort of stirs Mm. it all up and makes it all happen here and now. Right. I like that idea of things becoming more rapid because that is definitely a Uranus thing. And it's, it's most common, like in like, you see it in like technological applications or advances in technology and technology moving, either moving faster and faster or allowing things to move faster than they did previously. But in instances like this, it can sometimes just be speeding up a sequence the sequence of events much faster than than it normally would go. Yes. All right. Um so we've got this this full moon and uh this this is taking place on the 24th. Before we go further past this, I don't want to skip over it cuz I actually forgot last month to do the auspicious electional chart for the month and we ended up recording that separately. So uh, I should actually pull that up at this point. Uh, because it takes place actually a few days before we hit this critical juncture with the the full moon on the twenty fourth. So let me let me pull that up really quickly. So the election for this month that Lisa Shine picked out takes place on October twenty first, two thousand eighteen, starting around let's say one o seven p.m. local time. Whatever your local time is, just set it for about one o seven p.m. And what you want to shoot for. Uh, by setting it at 107 p.m. is having uh, Capricorn rising. So you want to shoot for Capricorn rising for this electional chart. And let me just get it on that specific degree. So when when you set it for 107, what you're shooting for is to make it so that's around 10 degrees of Capricorn rising, although that's kind of negotiable in this instance. try to make it so that the midheaven is not squaring Mars at 15 degrees of Aquarius, but otherwise anywhere probably with the rising sign in the first half of Capricorn would be good. So the electional chart for this month has Capricorn rising, Saturn in Capricorn in its own sign in a day chart. Uh, it's relatively well aspected by the benefics, so Venus has got a tight sextile that's applying with Saturn from 5 degrees of Scorpio going to four degrees of Capricorn. Jupiter is also in a superior sign-based sextile over Saturn that's not close by degree, but is at least a superior sign-based sextile, lending some support as well. Mars, unlike last month, is no longer in Capricorn, so we're able to use Capricorn rising elections again, um, since Mars is now in Aquarius and therefore not in the first whole sign house. And yeah, so this is just before we hit that sort of critical high turning point of the full moon. And in this chart, the moon is at 23 degrees of Pisces in the third house, and it's applying to a trine with Jupiter at 26 degrees of Scorpio in a day chart uh, with reception because the moon is in Pisces, which is one of the signs ruled by Jupiter, which helps to um, increase the relationship or tighten the relationship between those two planets and make it even positive, more positive than it already was. So this is a really good Saturn election. It's one of those early Saturn elections now that Saturn has moved into Capricorn late last year. 
Um, earlier in the year, we had some problems using Saturn elections with Saturn and Capricorn because a lot of them were night charts. But here in this half of the year, we've been taking advantage of the fact that um, they're, they're day charts at this point because when you have Capricorn rising in October, the sun is going to be in uh, Libra at that time and therefore it's going to be a day chart. So yeah, you can use it for a lot of positive day chart type Saturn activities. Uh, the only thing this chart is not that great for is financial matters because it puts Mars in the second house, um, which is not in a day chart, which is not super ideal for financial matters. You would probably want to go with a different election if you're looking for more of a financial election. Yeah, also um, south I, node in the second is no good for money. Sure, just because of the, the de decreasing property of the south node. Yeah. 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 Um, funny story, actually. I read an interesting... Um, I think it was like the Rolling Stone Rolling Stone magazine did like this uh, cover story on Johnny Depp recently and his financial problems. And it was really interesting because they said he just had problems spending money and he spent money like way, way too fast and way too impulsively on like extravagant purchases. And he has Mars in the second house in a day chart. And I thought that was just a great manifestation of that placement. Yeah. I think of Mars in the second as burning through you know, you got a, you've, mm. uh, you know, you you've got a hole. I guess the South Node would be of a hole in the in your wallet, and Mars is you burn through cash, right? Exactly. Yeah. So that, therefore, this election would not be great for that unless you want to burn through cash, or that's something that you're going for for some reason. But otherwise, it's a it's a very lovely election. Um, it also has some some okay eleventh house stuff going on with all of the benefics up there, although it's then. The 11th house is ruled by Mars, so there's the potential for some problems as well. Otherwise, generally, it's a good Saturn election, so we would primarily recommend it for that. So this was the most auspicious electional chart that we could find this month. Um, we do have three other charts that we're going to review on the Auspicious Elections podcast this month, which we're recording in the next few days, and that's available to patrons who are on the 5 and $10 tiers. So you can find out more information about that, I think, at uh, theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe and then there's a link to our patreon page there if you want to join and listen to that episode all right so that's the election for the month i just wanted to interrupt with before we went further um i think we talked a decent bit about the full moon as being a critical turning point in the month uh but what's going on after that is there anything else that we really need to to mention um the only thing that i have and it's not like necessarily like amazing or super strong compared to the full moon. But I do think it's just worth a quick mention of the Mercury-Jupiter conjunction on October 29th, which is a little bit like um, sort of a final broadcast, if you like, from Jupiter and Scorpio. Um, and then whether we want to go into the Venus opposite Uranus aspect, which is at the very well, end of the month. Well, we, we, we also Halloween. skimmed right past the Sun-Venus conjunction, oh, the Sun -Venus, which happens yes. like the day after. Uh, or twenty six, yeah, yeah, like yeah. right after the um the full moon. It's really a one two, one two wham, and so Wednesday the, Friday, yeah. So that's the the dead center of the Venus retrograde, and so we've got uh, so whenever you have uh, Mercury or Venus retrograding, the exact middle of it is the Sun's conjunction with that planet, and that's the inferior conjunction which is when the planet is um, actually closest to us. Um, when, Venus, when a retrograde Venus is conjoined the sun in a chart, 
it means that Venus is between us and the sun and very and right right around the closest to Earth point, right? And that's part of how a Venus, the middle of a Venus retrograde feels, right? It's uh, everything is, uh, you can feel it, right? It's going in, it's going towards us, it's close. There can be an uncomfortable lack of proximity, but at the same time, that perfect alignment with the sun, which qualifies as a Kazemi, right? When, when a planet is in the heart of the sun, the, the planet gets that clarity from the sun. Um, and so there's the, there'll be, that's a, that's a big clarity point. And it's nice that the, that's a, that a big clarity point follows that potentially quite disruptive full moon. So immediately it's literally the day later, a day later. Yes, that is, uh, it's an important one. It does often get overlooked. And I like how you really reiterated there, Austin, that it is the midpoint of the Venus retrograde cycle. So uh, that, you know, things start to shift and it'll be interesting because, you know, we were talking before about the change in quality of Venus retrograde in October while she's retro in Scorpio versus Venus retro in November where she's, uh, in Libra. It almost feels like that transition is maybe starting once we get on the other side of this sun Venus conjunction. Yeah, definitely. It's the, the point where if you go any further into the woods, you're actually beginning to leave the woods because you got to the middle. Or you're actually, yeah, you're beyond that. Yeah. If you're just, it's the bottom of the underworld where you can only go up, right? It's the, it's that point. It's the, the nadir or the, the center where just, yes. if you continue onward, now you're going out rather than going deeper. Yes. So you've, it's you've a, it's as deep as we have point. to go, right? Yeah. It, it's really interesting. You can see it really clearly in Mercury retrograde periods, that middle point being like the crucial turning point within the cycle where there starts to be a resolution oftentimes to the problems that were initiated at the at the retrograde station. Um, but it's interesting seeing that sometimes in the retrograde cycles of other planets like Venus as well. Yeah, there's totally you, you, you can you if you if you're paying attention, you can see events start to pivot. And you can also kind of feel something shift around that day. Which is kind of funny because we're we're on a never mind. So say we're we have a, a Mercury Sun conjunction exactly today, but it's not retrograde. It'll just be confusing. <laughs> sure. True. It's also a shift in the yeah. synodic cycles. The subject of my class for this October. If you'd nice like to be segue. confused, uh, <laughs> then I, I will. Well, go ahead. You will. You'll confuse people more. Well, we, it's, it's going to get complicated before it gets simple. You have to understand, once you understand yeah. them, you know, presenting the mechanics is initially confusing, but you know, if you yeah. want clarity, you have to go through that confusion. Which is really a good metaphor for October, isn't it? Yeah. It, it's all one theme. It's all one theme. Well, and speaking of all these love Venus themes, um, one thing I forgot to mention earlier is that my next online astrology class is a four-part class starting October 29th on astrology and relationships. So uh, I don't know that we'll necessarily do synodic cycles, but we will look at synastry, compatibility, along with timing in the context of relationships. So that will start after this sun venus conjunction uh, oh, at the very okay i got a, i got a new metaphor that's ooh, not ooh, sewer oh. oriented oh okay good we'll take it okay so it's it's into the dark woods that's what when you said before like yes okay tell us more 
It's like Little Red Riding Hood or something. Right. It's, and I mean, that's, I mean, how many fairy tales have Into the Dark Woods as a theme? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's yes. into, it's the dark woods of the heart. Mm-hmm. And I'm dark immediately thinking heart, about Dante's circle of hell where there's woods, yes. but I'm going to leave that out. It's funny you mentioned that because I just quoted a passage from that when I was teaching on the weekend. Uh, Dante? Uh, yeah, the, the part where he talks about, you know, midway through the journey of life, it's like I'm stuck in the dark woods and I don't know where to go from here. Oh, okay. I was thinking of the other woods, but that works too. Okay. There's there's a there's a <laughs> circle uh, of woods um, that's actually extremely appropriate, but is maybe too dark and depressing. I don't know. I've, I've been pushing it. With the uh, <laughs> with the blood and sewage and scorpions and toxins. This is your imagery. kind of month, though. I Austin. know, right? I'll be I'll be reveling in uh, Snow White metaphors in November when we have Venus and Jupiter in their own signs. Yeah. Well, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go for it. Um, so Good. the 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 layer is the the wood of suicides, and it's a metaphor for much more than just literal suicide. But the people in Dante's Inferno who took their own lives are turned into trees. And there's there are some mean birds that live in these trees and they tear at the branches. And the souls which become trees can only speak when their branches are broken and their sap is oozing out because it was they could only excuse me they could only speak when they were in pain or they only communicated when they were suffering um, and they were locked inside it and that's not inappropriate that's not off theme for the emotional imagery or for the emotional stuff that venus uh, retrograde and scorpio brings up beautiful yeah, that's good. Okay, so not like, too dark. Okay, <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's still pretty. It's still pretty dark, but, but appropriately uh, dark. Right. I like the title better than our earlier sewage theme title. Oh no! Yes. I'm my piece. I think my piece is going to be called "The Black Honey of Venus Cloacina." <laughs> Beautiful. There's going to be some great um, Twitter stuff going on with all of these uh, <laughs> threads and themes and possible titles. Um, and I wanted to actually bring it back and ask you something, Austin. Your mouse dream, and you, you're talking about the interplay between um, pleasure and pain, and that being tied into Venus and Mars. And not to like return back to that whole discussion, but kind of to return back to it. I, was curious if you could expand on that a little bit because it was a topic brought up and it was something I was trying to think about, which is that interplay between Venus and Mars and uh, sexuality and, and the general question of what does Mars have to do with sex? And is that it? Is that part of it? Or how would you address that question? Right. Well, that's so uh, one, I mean, just on a very simple technical level, um, Scorpio, which is one of Mars's two signs, uh, rules the genitals in the body. So that's worth right. noting. So there's an easy connection there. Um, but yeah, with pleasure and pain, like when people, mm, sex is not pure, excuse me, sex is for, mo- for the vast majority of people, not like purely Venusian. It's not just like getting a back rub, mm-hmm. like, there's the martial component. A lot of people like it rough or like it rough sometimes or are in the mood for that that day, but not the other. There's like a ratio uh, almost of Venus to Mars that 
that we could as we could look at use as a lens to look at a lot of people's um, sexuality. Um, you know, purely Venusian, you know, flower petals and soft music. And like, that's absolutely part of it. And it, I would say that sex is more Venusian than Marshall. Cause if you take Venus to an extreme, people are touching and saying nice things. If you take Mars to an extreme, nobody's even talking, but there is that, like that, there is that secondary Mars component, which is very difficult to ignore. Um, and not all of the sin, you know, not all of the sensations that people like are like soft and gentle. And so like, that's Mars, you know, and that's not sure. That's without even bringing up like BDSM or, you know, any of the, uh, those flavors, those, those tastes, if you will. What do yeah. you think? What do you think, Kelly? Well, I mean, this is making me think of a scene from sex in the city, and that's probably dating myself and showing my age a little bit. Um, you guys have maybe never seen Sex in the City. I'm not sure. Um, I think I've seen it. Do you guys know what I'm – I think I saw – An episode or two? I think two? I watched all of them. Okay. So there's one scene where – because what you're describing there, Austin, is sort of saying that there is maybe a healthy or a functional place for Mars in sexuality or in sexual expression. And the scene that I'm thinking of is – the very kind of maybe vanilla character of Charlotte York, who's the probably the most romantic fairy tale like one, who's just, you know, always looking for love. And there's a scene where she's visiting with some old friends and she's talking, she got a bit drunk at lunch and she's talking about how, you know, don't you just want someone to kind of throw you down and just kind of have that kind of more rough, like when the headboard is banging against the wall kind of experience. And this is the vignette from the scene. And I think, you know, even though this is a very perhaps Venusian or soft romantic character, even she's expressing that there are times when she wants that friction or that fast pace or even kind of more of that aggression style, which would be something much more Martian. Well, and that, that term right there, friction. Yeah. Friction is martial. Yeah. Friction creates yeah. sparks. Right. Well, yeah. and that it doesn't have to be negative or that it's not necessarily – like all aspects of sexuality are not necessarily coming from a negative place with Mars, but there's a constructive place where that's coming from as well. I mean, one of the other answers to that question that I was thinking of as I was trying to think about this myself was um, in that interplay between like what you were talking about earlier, talking about there's that side of Mars that is severing and separating Austin, but then there's also the piercing quality. And another mm. part of that is like the let's say like the penetrative quality of mars which yeah. in a negative sense can be like you know getting stabbed by somebody but in another sense can have like you know other types of sexual connotations that are not necessarily negative right well um, but it, with the, go ahead go ahead well, i was just gonna say it just occurred to me that if friction is an important part of you know uh, is an important part of sex which it is for the most part, it's not the only, there are acts which don't depend on friction, but many of them do. The way to maximize friction is to put one thing inside another thing, to be surrounded, for something to be surrounded on all sides um, by friction, right? Like you get more, like yeah. if you do, you know, if we rub our arms together, that's one part of my arm um, getting friction. Um, whereas if something was inside my arm or my arm, this, I'm sorry. This I'm trying to not be too. Crude. I know. I but like no, but like as a dynamic, like that, like um, when one thing is inside another, it maximizes friction. You get friction as many surfaces as possible at the same time. 
Yeah. More surface area. Right. And, Thank you. Yes, more surface area. And I think that, you know, penetration is, I'm not saying it's the only, but it's a common part of sexual encounters, basically. Right. And that's that becomes like the constructive function of Mars and its role in a sexual relationship is the penetrative role versus Venus's the more receptive role. And like I, I had actually a crude way of putting that, which is uh, that Venus is uh, Mars is is basically the signification of fucking, basically, whereas Venus would be the signification of being fucked. And when I was talking to Christopher Renstrom about this. <laughs> We were placing it in the context of we were talking about Ptolemy's approach to sexuality. We were talking about Venus and Mars. And what was interesting is he wasn't distinguishing between gender, but he was just distinguishing no. between whether you were a, like a top or whether you were a bottom, which was true of like heterosexual relationships, but also homosexual relationships. And that was that sort of has been the way that I've sort of understood Mars and Venus and that interplay, which doesn't have to be necessarily negative, but instead it's more about who's playing which role. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Does, that, does I, that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. There's a receptive quality to the planet Venus and there is a penetrative or driving or even an attacking force to the quality of Mars. Yeah. I, um, I, I, I really think as we're talking about this, it's, it's almost like, so, you know, the act, any act of union is going to be primarily any act of physical union and closeness is going to be primarily Venus, but it's like, how, how much Mars would you like seasoning your Venus? It's almost like, you know, you, mm. how I, much spice? I think of going to the Thai restaurants. Like, do you want one star or do you yeah. want five? Right. And it's very, you know, and for people who like five, one is boring. For people who like one, yes. five makes it so they're not able to enjoy their meal. It's too uncomfortable. I can't even taste it. It's way too hot. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. That's really good because it also takes it outside of a a negative context, even though obviously like if you threw spice in like somebody's eyes, like that would be viewed as like, you know, a negative thing. But if it's something where you're just eating it and you're just choosing different levels, then it's placed in a neutral and sort of constructive context. Which is kind of the piece with Mars. It depends on where it is, how it's received, and what degree, you know, is is this heat in the fifth degree or in the first degree? And, you know, that's exactly, you know, and the right application, spice in the eye, very, very painful. Um, <laughs> spice in the mouth, you know, pick your, pick your ratio. Right, depends. Makes me think of the, the, the taste of both, like the um, hot and mm. hot or, you know, spicy and hot versus sweet. And sweet and spicy yeah. is totally a combination that works. Totally a combination that works. Yeah. So is the final final thing though is that is sexuality something that is only proper primarily to Venus or is it something that both Venus and Mars share in common because of that dynamic or that duality between them I would say that it is primarily Venusian and that not the second uh you know if I have to give it to one planet Venus wins but um if we're going to talk about any other planet besides Venus which we should Mars would be number 2 okay yeah um, yeah, and I can't tell if I can ex extricate it from that dynamic between the two, but because relationship itself is more of a Venusian thing, I think it's easier usually to put sex also in that category. Well, it's just like if, if you, if you have, you know, you need a certain amount of Venus to just get two human beings together in the same room, 
right? Like if you have right. all, you if you have all Mars, a- it's like a, like some, you know, tough, grizzled, whoever, like living with their dog alone in a cabin hunting for a living, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think I might, I might go a little different direction. I do think you need a splash of Mars to get two people to go from, we're having a nice chat or we're having a nice dinner. We need something to spark up. We need a little heat to come into this. Otherwise, we're just, you know, chocolate sauce on ice cream. Like, it's just delicious and we've got, like, we've had so much sweetness. I think you need a splash of Mars. I think it's predominantly Venusian. Yeah. I th- but I do think we need we need the heat. We need the fire. Yeah. I think that, uh, I think we're kind of of one mind here, maybe saying it differently. Yeah. But yeah. Well, maybe that's the, the thing that changes it from just being almost like a friendship or like a union of two people in friendship of some sort or, or similarity or affinity to something else of having like sexual chemistry and that's where the mars element comes in perhaps yeah yeah i mean and i don't i don't want to be crude or upset people, but it, it feels like you know that throwdown component which is like yeah there's something has to shift or turn on or get activated where you want to actually go into that space with another person and whether it's friction or heat or spice or passion or whatever they seem a little bit more like mars pieces yeah well so yeah venus is the water then you have to have a you have to have at least a little heat there has to be a flame something has to ignite that in order to make it steamy bubble it up right yeah steamy is heated water correct all right so um did we give you some answers there chris (laughs) yeah i think that was some answers and i I just want to have it i mean it was sparked by a discussion that was started by by ryan butler so i wanted to give him credit for that and and I was curious what you guys, because it was just something I was thinking about as a result of that and thinking back to, yeah, just that issue, because that was an issue for me years ago, because I had a similar issue of, is Venus really the primary planet that has to do with sex because of its connection with relationships? Or what role does Mars play and why does Mars play a role in sexuality? And is it only in a negative sense? Because there's like an issue where you read some ancient texts like Valens, where often a lot of the negative aspects of sexuality are are given to Mars because that's its extreme manifestation. And that's also something that sometimes comes naturally if you had to assign it to a single planet to Mars as a malefic. But that's not necessarily to say that it only has that or or can only be expressed in a negative context. Um, yeah. Anyway, thanks for humoring me with that. And I thought it was good because of this Venus retrograde, we're going to see so much of Venus that excels at doing things like Mars does, doing things like Mars and Scorpio would, but seeing Venus express that. And that's one of the reasons why I thought it was sort of like relevant to talk about this month in this context, because that's so much of what the the energy of the month will be will be about. Yeah, definitely. Very, very on point yeah. or on theme. For on, sure. Very, very on topic. Yeah. Sure. Awesome. Good. Good. Well, I'm glad that I did not like take it in a totally uh out of left field like topic direction. So I think we're we're going on over two hours here, so I think we're t- both towards the end of the month. And, standard, right? Standard. Um, so the last thing that happens at the very end of the month is I did notice there's a shift where obviously Venus retrogrades back into Libra, which is something we're going to spend a lot of time talking about next month because uh, yeah. it's going to spend pretty much the the entirety of of the rest of its retrograde there, and and then eventually we'll station direct oh. there. So it actually it it, it regresses into libra on halloween yeah okay right that later that day here in the u.s 
Interesting. So Venus goes back into Libra on Halloween, and then also at the same time, the other ingress that takes place is Mercury, I think the same day, shifts from Scorpio, where it's been all month, and moves into Sagittarius, which also consequently is where it's going to station retrograde just two weeks later, or a little over two weeks later. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. um, there's a little bit of an interesting shift there that takes place at the end of the month, where suddenly things lighten up a little bit. Venus moves out of Scorpio, and Mercury also moves out of Scorpio, leaving only the Sun and Jupiter there. So a little bit of an energy change right at the very end of the month on Halloween, and then that pretty much closes out the month. Yeah, it's um, yes. Yeah, it the it becomes less less of a gothic fairy tale. Yes, definitely. All right. Um, so it is. It's a it's a shift, um, like a lightening the mood, if you like, and uh, that's a big teaser for next month's episode. Yeah, when we definitely. Yes. Once we've once we've entered the dark woods and discovered the hidden sewage plant there, and um, <laughs> proceed outward, uh, possessed of yes. revelations, possessed of revelations or juicy mulch, which we can, um, you know, grow something from. Yeah, and sometimes returning back to and finishing things that were started previously. I actually have a very um, concrete manifestation of that where Demetra's finishing her book on Hellenistic astrology right now and volume one is going to be completed and I'm reading through it and I'm trying to write the foreword right now, but she's completing and just wrote a footnote for a section where um, we researched a bunch of definitions and she did a, a translation of a Greek text of Antiochus back in late 2010 and i just realized that Ah. this as she's finalizing that for publication this book with those translations um were actually things that we did we put together her and i and ben dykes back eight years ago right around the time of the last venus retrograde so that's kind of a concrete manifestation of sometimes you can have a repetition of similar topics or themes coming back again during a retrograde in those eight-year increments. Yeah, I'm, I'm 100% curious about that because I wrote my first almanac during the Venus retrograde in 2010. Okay. Mm, interesting. So that's something everybody should do this month is to have a think back to October, November 2010, which was the last Venus retrograde in Scorpio and in Libra and uh, see if there are any repetitions and maybe they can post them in the comments of the show uh, just for more ongoing chit-chat. Actually, now that you mention it, I think I may have started podcasting in November of 2010. Really? Oh, yeah? Huh. Well, I'll have to, yeah. I'll have to look into that. All right, guys. <laughs> there you go. Well, you guys are much quicker off the mark than me. I'm like, I've got no idea what happened in 2010, but I'll have a think about it. Well, I, sure right. I started thinking about it last year. I was like, what's going to happen in 2018? Right. <laughs> oh, no. What's oh, that? Well. It's always those things that you don't think about or you don't remember until they start repeating themselves. And then you think back and remember, oh, yeah, that did happen eight years ago and it was connected to this thing that's happening now. Yep. Totally. No, there's a lot of stuff. Like, I, you know, when, when I think back to that uh, October, November, um, Kate was super busy and I was away writing. And so we just spent less time with each other than we normally do. And she's on track to be super busy during the fall. And I think I'm probably going to find myself, I don't know, uh, lost inside a book project. So, you know, (laughs) the more things change. Yeah. Brilliant. Amazing. All right, guys. Well, thanks for for joining me today. This was a lot of fun. It's always great catching up with you and talking about the month ahead. So so thanks for, for, yeah, joining me again today. Always. 
Anytime. It's fantastic. Always lots of fun. All right. And thanks to our, our audience. We had about 25 or 30 people here joining us who are patrons of the podcast, who were joining us for the live uh, early access uh, recording tier. So thanks a lot. There's a lot of great questions and comments and always appreciate that. Thanks to all of our patrons who support the show and allow us to produce it each month and to keep making it bigger and better. Uh, it makes a huge difference. Uh, thank you also to people who've given us ratings on iTunes because it helps other people to find the podcast. So please be sure to like and subscribe and all of that stuff. So thanks everyone for, for listening and we'll see you again next month. Thank you.